0: Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show world champion hammer thrower, revered strength and conditioning coach, and law enforcement officer, Derek Woodsky. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics in three and a half hours, from his early life in rural British Columbia, his journey into athletics the responsibility of high school and college coaches to preserve not only performance but wellness in their athletes, his work with Charles Poliquin, his journey into the tactical athlete space, supplementation, Bitcoin mining, and so much more. Now before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Derek Woodsky. Enjoy. Well, Derek, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's really cool to get the opportunity uh, to do podcasts. I have a tendency to be a bit long-winded, uh, to say the least, but at the at the very least, it gives me a chance to kind of tell a little bit of a new story that I think people haven't had a chance to hear yet.
0: Absolutely. Well, this is uh you know open forum as far as the length. Each of my episodes is different depending on when it organically <laughs> concludes. So feel free to expand on your thoughts.
1: Awesome. No, I appreciate it greatly. Um yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting. And I hope that some of the topics that we get into today and just some of the stuff we talk about, uh, you know, especially with getting into Uh, law enforcement work in the last couple of years and how I kind of stumbled into it like everything else in my life um, might give people uh, incentive might be the wrong word, but at the very least make people of similar mind realize that there is a way to kind of get involved with community work that isn't the old school ideology of a soup kitchen etc. You know, like there's there's some ways to be a part of your community that isn't exactly as one would assume.
0: Brilliant. Well, let's uh, let's begin at the origin story then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many
1: siblings. Awesome. So I grew up in a really rural area, southern British Columbia, kind of along the southeastern eastern edge of the Rocky Mountains, uh, just north of Montana, Idaho. Uh, The area itself, when I say isolated, is a bit of an understatement. Um, We were a logging town of about 200-ish people um, that had been there for quite some time. There was one industry uh, that really was visible in the town, and that was logging. There was a little bit of mining, but to a lesser degree, uh, the railroad ran through our valley, the Columbia Valley, and we had one kind of road in and out, and that was it. So growing up there was a byproduct of my dad being transferred from a little bit larger area to oversee a, a logging company's expansion into the, to the region. Uh, my dad had played sports, but like a lot of small-town Canadians from his generation, growing up in a town equally as small as mine, although now they have a massive bit mining operation in it which is mind blowing to me um can you get black lung from bit mining <laughs> <laughs> you know it's crazy that they i'll get into that in a second that they're that they are repurposing old logging mills in BC for bitcoin it, and basically cryptocurrency as a whole i'll talk about that in a second cuz to me it is fascinating um but growing up in that tiny town uh, my dad played sports, but didn't have opportunity to pursue them, you know? Uh, so as kids, we were really active, you know, rode a lot of motocross, skied in the winter, um, did those things. But being so isolated, we were kind of up to our own idle hands, to say the least, to to figure out what to do. And, you know, and it's funny, all these years later, our town was so small and so removed from the next Uh, incorporated area, which would have been Golden, British Columbia, which has now grown into quite a ski resort tourist destination. But at the time, it was just a railroad stop and uh, a logging town as well. There wasn't really anything in Golden that was bustling by any stretch of the imagination. You know, but we didn't have uh, any services in our town, you know, outside of of what the logging companies provided. So we didn't have police or fire or ambulance. We didn't have any of that. The closest that that would have been would have been golden. you know. So I always used to joke to people. I'm like, typically the RCMP or our policing in Canada would drive into town once a week, if you even saw them. They would drive into town once a week. They would park at the local elementary school that went like K through seven. They would sit for about 15 minutes. And then they would drive back to Golden. They'd do that once a week unless there was some crazy emergency. And it was just their way, I think, of letting people know that we were still a part of the bigger system, you know. But at the same time, we were self-policed, for sure, uh, self-governed. Um, it was, even though it was southern Canada in the 80s and 90s, it was a different type of Canada, Um I think to some degree it hasn't changed all that much other than they have cell phones now. Uh, But in terms of like a culture in a town, I mean, that was like really blue collar, really hard living. Um, Not a lot of, not a lot of people made it all the way through high school. Even when I was in high school in the nineties and not for the crazy reasons we're seeing now, but like, you know, the, the incentive of a paycheck at like 15 or 16 was more practical, um, to the people I grew up with than to continue through to high school, uh, and finish with a graduation ceremony. Typically, even in the mid nineties, when I came out of high school, uh, more of the girls that were graduating would go off to school than the boys you know so they might leave and go to university and, and get out of town but for a lot of the guys they would go to work for the mill or go up to work for the logging companies um for me i stumbled into sports because of my dad's uh athleticism you know he was a big track and field guy uh did high jump and in the events so when i started to show interest in sport in like the 7th 8th grade he really kind of championed the idea of me pursuing sports and just having fun with it you know we we had no idea like we we didn't know what my potential was there you know there had been no one else do anything that I was doing prior to me doing it at my high school and so I just kind of randomly stumbled into track and field on the throwing event side disc a shot you know a little bit of hammer back then and I just enjoyed it i I I love to lift weights when I was young, you know, I got into lifting weights at 14 or 15 for whatever reason, um, you know, maybe comic books, the whole, the whole nine back then, the idea of, of maybe something greater than the town I was in, maybe like the idea of like, you know, I was surrounded by these extremely strong capable people, right? Like that wasn't for a lack of existence. Um, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, I remember meeting a guy, uh, and God, who was it? I think I told Jocko this story a couple of weeks back. And I, I remember no, it was Evan from black rifle coffee. There was a guy in our town that had like a 22 inch like guns, like had huge arms and he wasn't a big guy. Like he was just like, it was kind of on sparring, you know, he was a biker, you know, wore a lot of flannel and jeans and he was a He was what we call a faller, and so he cut trees down with a chainsaw. In the U.S., sometimes you'll hear the term Sawyer, and he used to curl his chainsaw on the landing. But, like, that was just a guy wandering around this, like, wooded logging town. Like, who knows why he curled his chainsaw? You know, someone, something triggered him at some point. But I remember seeing these people as a kid and being like, these guys are huge. Like, they're big, Viking-strong men. And I remember like at 14 or 15, and my dad was a a big man. And I remember like being as a young kid being like, wow, like that's kind of what I want to be like, like these guys are capable. And so I started lifting weights like 14 or 15, not knowing it would lead to anything um, just because I liked it. And then, you know, back in the old school days, buying like Flex magazine or muscle fitness from the grocery store or 7-Eleven and seeing like these exaggerated ideals I'm like, holy crap, these there's guys out there that actually look like Wolverine or Superman or whoever uh, from the comic books. And so I just kind of got into the physical culture world and and started lifting weights and it started to guide me without realizing it. you know, I was starting to make decisions in high school that were different than my friends. Um, you know, like for me, like by 15 or 16, I was like, well, you know, if I go out and do this or I go out and do that, then, you know, my training on Monday or if I want to uh, go to the gym on Monday night might be hampered or, you know, I don't see Lee Haney drinking and, and smoking weed. I don't see these guys doing that type of stuff. And I'm like, well, if they're not doing it, then I probably shouldn't do it either. And And I kind of fell into that straight edge lifestyle as they call it and not being aware of it, like everything in that small town. So I was a super straight edge kid that lifted a lot of weights and, and cared really only about training and fantasizing about like, what could I do with my life? And so track and field ended up developing a little bit for me and coming through high school and, and doing pretty well to provincial level and, and that sort of thing. I had done well enough for the dream not to be squashed, but I didn't do well enough to get a scholarship out of high school. Um, So what I did is I, you know, the year after high school, not really sure what the next step was for me, uh, went and trained with what we had in Canada back then. It was a track and field club. And there was one in Trail, British Columbia which was about three hours from where my dad got transferred to when I graduated little, my dad got transferred to a little bigger area the year after high school. And then the trail was about three hours from there. trail had a history of producing a lot of major league baseball players and NHL hockey players. So the town was a lot more developed. They had a really good athletic system in place from the, the old Kaminko mine era, you know? And so what ended up happening is I went there for a year and uh, just trained, Like it wasn't school, wasn't anything. It was like a year off. Like some people explore the world. I went to a mining town in Southern British Columbia, (laughs) trained, trained with this old East German coach, right? Like it makes no sense. But now I look back on it with such fond memories, but it was like hard. Like trail is not a pretty city. You don't go there for your year off to, to investigate life. You know, (laughs) it was like my town miserable by 10. Right. So So I was training there with a group of guys and girls that were kind of mixed, you know, some elite level high school kids, some were coming back from the university college system uh, uh, in the U S and Canada. And I remember talking with a guy who had kind of done all that. And he had been on team Canada and he was kind of nearing the end of his career. He's really good decathlete. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. I just want to try to make a Canadian national team. I, isn't that what we're all trying to do? And I was pretty juvenile in my, my ability at that time. And he goes, why don't you go to the U S and to me, that had never even crossed my mind outside of like 90210 and the fantasy of California. Right. Like, you know, as a kid growing up where I did, we watched a lot of surf movies and you know uh, a very small piece of that. I was a hardcore mountain skier. So uh, all through high school, all my free time was spent on skis and snow. So that, like that, that culture was in me as well. Like the, you know, chasing the idea of big waves mindset, right? Like the extreme sports side and motocross. So outside of track, I did that, but not competitively to the level I was in track. I was, I was an okay downhill skier, competitively not focused. Um, but what was interesting is when he had said that, it just kind of like turned on a light bulb for me. And I'm like, well, how do I get there? So, you know, this is pre-internet. So I went to a local library at the Castlegar Community College equivalent, and I took out a book, literally just went into the library and looked at a book, and it was, uh, I knew that I didn't have an SAT, which was key. So I knew I couldn't go to Division One without an SAT, or, you know, and I didn't know much about D2 or anything. So I, in my head, it was very black or white. I'm like, ah, oh, it's D1 or nothing, right? So... Uh, I knew I couldn't go D D one without the SIT, so I took out a book on junior colleges of the United States, and that and I just kind of looked. And this sounds so crazy when I think back on it. And I, when I got inducted into the Hall of Fame, I actually told this story to the college that <laughs> inducted me, and it was kind of crazy. Um, when I took out the book, I looked geographically. I'm like, okay, my parents live in Point A, Canada. What are the closest point B schools that I should call? Because I'm like, I don't want to like call Hayes, Kansas or like, you know, southeastern United States from from where I was in southern BC. I'm like, because if this is a terrible idea, I want to drive home. So I looked at uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which had North Idaho College, and I looked at Spokane Falls community. And just by coincidence, I called Spokane Falls first because my buddy who told me to do this had gone there at some point. I call, I call, I call, no one answers. All right, Spokane's out. Like, you know, that was it. So I call up uh, North Idaho College and Coach Bundy at the time, who I learned later on, literally is never in his office. Like he avoided his office like the plague. He was a history teacher and the head track coach at the time. I called and literally like first ring, he's like, hello, you know, and I'm like, oh God, what do I do? So I cold cold called at at JUCO or junior college in the, in the U S and I'm like, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I do. And the story I told at the hall of fame induction was the fact that they didn't know. I totally lied to get in. And I've told Bert (laughs) Soren this at Sorenx and what, and I didn't know what to say. So I didn't, in the hammer throw, you have a 12 pound hammer in high school and you have a 16 pound hammer in college. I'd never thrown a 16 pound hammer beyond anything. I like, I I was in that transitional period. So when they asked me how far I could throw, I just immediately said what I'd thrown in high school. They made the correlation that I was talking about a 16 pound hammer, not a 12 pound hammer. And they're like, wow, that's farther than anyone here. And I never corrected them, but I immediately knew that they were thinking 16. I'm like, oh, that's great. And so they called me down uh, for a meeting, which was like two hours away. I came down, met with the coaches, not realizing that they ran their throws program basically as an aside to their track program. And the throws coach was a guy named Bud Rasmussen, who not announced to me was a young coach who at the time was development uh, developmental, right? So, we hit it off. He's like, yeah, you know, it'd be great if you could come down. So, I came down in, you know, 97, uh, technically 96, 97. So, I get down there and in my head, I'm like, oh my God, I, I got into a US college with a bullshit story. What do I do? So, I did like a kid from a logging town would do is you show up 30 minutes early and leave 30 minutes late for the next year and you just work as hard as physically possible so you don't disappoint anybody and uh and at the end of that year uh I won a national championship for them and then went on to win two more which was the most national titles any athlete had ever won for that school uh and that got me the opportunity to go Division One after that. So I got recruited out of that JUCO after having had all this success. And what people, it's so funny how life can kind of like intermix. What I could have never predicted going into NIC is like, because basically I was an empty vessel, right? Like I, I had all this potential, but I had no clue. So as long as you poured the right fuel into me, it was going to burn and it was going to burn really hot and really well. What I didn't realize when I made that cold call is that Bud Rasmussen would be the fuel that he himself would go on to be the 2008 U.S. Olympic coach, right? So there was no way to see all of these parts of a puzzle in play at the time. There's It was impossible. So I had this amazing coach who happened to be at this really obscure little juco, during a time when that Juco was about to go on a run of like monster track and field proportions. They went on to win so many national titles after that on individual events because of Bud. So I was his first, right? And I kind of catalyst, uh, this whole recruiting ability. So then they could start recruiting because of national titles. Then you're getting all these kids come in that are now going to be Bud's uh, protégés that he's going to produce to division one success. And the the program exploded. There, There was probably a five or six year run with that program, North Idaho College, where they just crushed. And they, how would I say this? They rewarded that program by cutting it from the athletics and that's the bizarre nature of collegiate sports and so that was also my first lesson into do what you can with what you got as hard as you can because there is absolutely no guarantees in sports and that would go on to ring true over and over and over in my sporting career and coaching career um you know like uh All the way through until when I worked in the NFL, it was just this cutthroat. Didn't matter if guys were making 15 million and had their face on a Wheaties box. If they didn't fit the bill, you know, see you tomorrow. Right. So it's, uh, it it was interesting, but that is what got me into the collegiate system. And then I went on to Wyoming, had success at Wyoming. And then, you know, the long, long part of the story is I also had catastrophic injuries and long periods of surgeries and spent a year in college having to learn how to walk again because of a really bad uh, setback I had, and then came back from all of that to work post-collegiately with a coach in Ohio named Judd Logan, and Judd was kind of like Bud Rasmussen, produced and produced and produced, and he, uh, his legacy will literally last and live forever um that program still is producing and that's inevitably what got me to the Canadian national team in uh 2001 and eventually 2005 even after all my surgeries and injuries and kind of like made that national title jump and broke the Canadian national record and went to the commonwealth games and and did those things I'd always dreamed of as a kid um but it really was purely the byproduct When I think back on it, obviously I had aptitude, you know, as a professional coach, 20 years later, if I saw myself walk through the door, I'm like, oh yeah, I can work with this kid, you know, but, uh, so I had the aptitude, you know, I had the mindset, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, that I needed, but I really have had amazing, like just absolutely essential mentor role players all the way along, like, and I didn't know they were going to be of that pedigree when I met them. A lot of them, I mean, Judd, I did. Judd was a four-time Olympian. You go train with Judd as a pro athlete because he's the best. Um, but prior to Judd, you know, I I just got, I got lucky at times. Um, and then my, my ability and will just stumbled onto somebody else's doormat and they got lucky that I stumbled onto it. Um, so I realize now that there's kind of this symbiotic relationship in the human performance world, especially with coaching, like you can recruit and you can recruit. And I've recruited some superstars that ended up just fizzling. And I've had that lucky kid step on my doorstep and turned him into a freak, right? Because they wanted to be the freak and you had the, the, the fuel to fill that vessel a little bit. Um, So it, that's kind of how I ended up in the, in the US, you know, in the late 1990s was 100% through this really bizarre sporting path. And, uh, and then that opened doors, went into the collegiate coaching system, uh, coaching the NFL, and, uh, then went in private sector in 2010. And that is, an entirely different existence because that private sector took me all over the world and eventually government uh government work in 2014 with the saudi government
0: beautiful well there's so much i want to kind of unpack
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know i just like just did a, a like a file dump right <laughs> <laughs> well the first thing
0: was there a moment where you threw the 16 as far as a 12 that you told them where you realize okay now i'm not living a lie anymore
1: yeah. Canadian, or sorry, the uh, JUCO national championships. Yeah. So <laughs> the first year training, just training my butt off, trying to like, like balance those, those stories. Uh, then we get to Midland, Texas. And I think it was technically Odessa. We were like that Permian high school that Friday night lights was filmed about. Um, so that was where my first ever JUCO championships was held was at that high school in Texas. So that was crazy in its own right, you know, to come from uh, nowheresville to be standing in a high school football field to get 60,000 fans. Like we didn't even have a track, right? You know, thank God we had hockey or we wouldn't know what sports were at all. And so uh, I went, I was at that national championships and I came in ranked like fifth or sixth. And it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, that one actually I, I don't think I've ever told. So Bundy, our head coach, who was never in his office, well, there ended up being some reasons he was never in his office. Like maybe he wasn't the most on top of it guy, right? For all of his qualities, he was kind of loose. And so he, so I had qualified for the national championships uh with an okay throw, nothing crazy. Um, but he forgot to submit it. Right. So we thought we're all good. Like I should have been good. I should have been fifth ranked fifth or sixth in the nation, Um, you know, which would have been fine as a, as a freshman. Anyway, it wasn't a, I would have been able to pull that off and everyone would have been happy, but we get there and I'm not on the flight sheets, which 99% of the time means that you're not competing. Right. So he talks to the meet director and is like, listen, these are his marks. They've all been, these ones were submitted. This should have them at least in the meet." We don't know what happened. And so apparently he knew this guy from way back in the day. The guy slipped me in. So what they did, which is unusual, is they had the meet set by flights. And everyone knew ahead of time who was competing, what their like qualifying throw was. But I wasn't on the list. So they just stuck me. First thrower, first flight. Here's your first three. If you do it, you do it. If you don't, you don't. So I didn't know what to expect. So I'm like, sweet, okay, I'll I'll compete, not realizing what was actually happening at the time. Yeah, you know, I step in first throw, first flight, and like drop a national leading throw. Like it was just one of those it was like one of those things. The ability was there. I just never knew when it was gonna show up. Well, it showed up, first throw, first flight, and everybody. It's like, who is this guy who just threw a national leading throw the first flight of first field? And you could just see everybody shit the bed like they were done. And I was like, okay, cool. Is that good? Like, because I'm clueless, like I am literally still, (laughs) you know, peeling logs from southern B.C. Like, I'm just like, sweet. So that's good, I guess uh, IPR'd that's, that's neat. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> drop this bomb on these kids. And then I have to wait around for like the, another, like, I think it was a full flight of kids. And you could just see like just into the cage and fouling out. And like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not wise enough. I don't have enough experience. I don't know anything about anything to realize that the meat is falling apart. For me, I'm just like, oh, I don't know, maybe they're not that good or, ah, oh, that happens. And so Every, the dust settles. And I like win a national title by like five or six feet, right? Like just drop a bomb on these guys. <laughs> and uh I'm like, sweet. And I was so naive. I remember just being like, oh, that's cool. I won. Like I was just like out of my own mind. And then it was like, after that summer, I started to realize like, oh, oh, holy crap. Like, I really like pulled one over on those guys. Like I really shook up the whole apple cart, that national championship. And then I really started to kind of come into my own that next fall and that, that, and which isn't uncommon, Um, you know, like as a coach now it's usually about that, you know, 15 to 18 month mark of having the same coach and same system that you'll really see an escalation of ability if an athlete is, is into it. Um, you know, you can have success right out of the box with people, and that's that's not uncommon like but if your program's good, which buds was um that it's gonna be that kind of year and a half in where they're gonna explode for you, and that's exactly what happened. so you know, by the midpoint of my sophomore year, you know, I'm breaking national records and you know just. I didn't lose. I just never lost again after that. Um, and that continued until I got to Wyoming and got injured. Like I just, you know, I think my first year at Wyoming, uh, I was ranked number one in the world indoors. Like, so it, it just kind of like, once I, I tapped into whatever that gene was that needed to be activated, right. Like had to, you know, <laughs> had to, had to get the DNA on track with my goals, uh, yeah i really took off it was like a rocket ship after that for a while yeah
0: so this is a question i ask a lot of guests that have competed at a high level when they were younger and or are coaches now and obviously you fit both of those which happens a lot as an englishman coming to america and i've told this kind of perspective quite a lot um I was struck by the number of Uncle Rico's. And I mean that with compassion. Oh, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not being sneered. <laughs> but it was so many people yeah. that were you know, younger than him, though. You know, like 20, mm-hmm. 25. Oh, I could have, should have, if it wasn't it for my meniscus, my shoulder, my this, my that. And then as we kind of progressed through, I've you know, I've been an athlete. I've competed in martial arts. Um, You know, I've been a coach. I started thinking, well... Have we muddled that line as high schools, colleges between performance and winning the game being the most important thing Mm -hmm. and the wellness and longevity of the children and young adults that we're asking to compete
1: for us? Well, it's it's funny that you use the analogy of Uncle Rico. Um, So what my analogy uh, and the character doesn't have a name. But if people are just old enough or into movies enough, they'll they'll know the movie. So there was a movie called Johnny B. Good, and it was like an 80s football flick. Um, and it was kind of like a loose comedy. Uh, a lot of famous actors were in it that have gone on to become huge now. But that movie used to really resonate with me because there's a scene in Johnny B. Good uh, where they're on a recruiting trip and like, Southern U S and they roll up and he's a quarterback. The main character rolls up to a gas station. They buy a bunch of snacks and this kid, like he's got the whole world ahead of him. You know, he's the big recruit. He's got girls and guys in the car that are ready to party. It's just perfect. Like, it's just amazing. It's everything that's amazing about college sports. The guy at the gas station has like a brief conversation with the actor, the main actor. And uh was it C. Thomas Howell? I I can't remember now, but it it'll come to me. And he's like, "Hey, so you're going to be recruited by this school?" And he's like, "Yeah, I think I'm going to sign with them," you know. And he's like, "Yeah, it's a good school. They took care of me too." And he kind of like alludes to the fact that you know maybe it didn't go well for him. And he's he, they're like, "Well, you know what they do for you," kind of thing. He's like, "Wow, well, they set me up with this gas station." And the car leaves the scene. God, some of these movies were so so amazing that people forget about. And the main actor is kind of looking back, and the guy limps into the gas station, and it's like that director probably went on to make an Oscar movie at some point because if he's making low budget B level comedy this good, right? That he, <laughs> I should look to see who directed that. But you see the guy, big strong guy, just kind of limp back into the gas station. That's the end of the scene. And, and you can see that it has a profound effect on the main character. So for those that are curious, Johnny Be Good football movie from the eighties, it's hilarious, but it's also really an interesting flick that way. And I've thought about that a lot because I was a disposable athlete when I got to Wyoming. So I've told the story on occasion, but we had a coach, um, whose sole mission when they got to Wyoming it was their first head coaching job. And he brought in a uh a, a stable of athletes that he wanted all to be Olympians, and some were. Um, and a lot of us got really hurt. Uh, as as I always say, I should have never spent a you know a half a year relearning how to walk as a hammer thrower. That is unacceptable. Like it, it is unacceptable. Um, and so what ended up happening is it really opened my eyes to the fact that you have to be really careful, uh, sending your athletes off to these programs. And you have to be really cautious with who is actually working with these athletes. There are a lot of extremely sociopathic, uh, success driven coaches. They do not care about the welfare of the athletes that they're they're working with they don't care and as as much as parents don't want to hear it because they don't they don't want their kid to be uncle rico right or worse yet they think their kid should be peyton manning so they're almost willing to turn a blind eye to a lot of the horrific shit that happens at the high school level and collegiate level because the dream or the idea that their kid is gonna sign that big contract or maybe get paid in college now, which blows my mind. Um, it, it overrides safe, logical, healthy thought processes. And you definitely see it. Um, I saw it in college, I was a byproduct of it. I was there were changes to the NCAA rules and guides book on how a coach can travel, take care of, and basically oversee an athletic program because of the NCAA violations that my program was experiencing, right? So, you know, sometimes I never talk about that, it, which is a funny compartmentalization if I'm 100% honest, right? Because as much success as I had at Wyoming, absolutely the most catastrophic period of my life, Uh physically, which always comes with emotional, right? So, you know, there I am number one in the world, right? Uh, Make sure I get that right. Yeah. Number one in the world, everything's on that skyrocket. I was talking about coming out of an amazingly well curated program like Bud who cared about his athletes to this program where I remember getting blown up, having surgery, and then I was in a hip cast, which is crazy as a hammer thrower. So I was, in, uh, I was in a hip cast for 14 weeks. So hip to ankle uh, and there was nobody around. I didn't see anybody, you know, like I had coaches coming by. I became better friends and better connected um, to, the, to the medical staff at the school at that point. Um, but at the the one thing that experience taught me at the time was to cut the apron strings from dependency on the false narrative that coach knows all. Um, and at that point, I would say like, when you talk about like, uh, like Joseph Campbell, like the warrior's path, um, you know, child becoming man type of stuff, that's probably when it happened for me. um, that, that was like my, my hero's journey was that injury for sure. Um, and then you have other ones that happen as you go through different life experiences, but that was like the, the pinnacle to the Valley, to the, you are no longer, you know, you get out of this, you get through this and find your way back to the top again, which in a weird way I, I ended up doing, um, took longer than I thought, but That, that to me was really my hero's journey because afterwards I was like, it it really is, it's my path because I can take all the influence I want from these great mentors and great people. But at the end of the day, it's going to come down to me. Like if I want to walk again, if I want to train again, if I want to have an active life again, because at that point I wasn't even thinking about track. I was so, I was so jacked up from that injury that it was about, oh, your leg doesn't bend anymore. Your, your kneecap was completely, uh, changed. Your whole structure of your system is different. Um, wow, maybe I can't ski anymore. Maybe like all those thoughts. And, and so that was on me at that point to be like, all right, this is, you need to, You need to take the reins, and you need to solve this problem, and you need to expand your horizons of who you listen and learn from and take that information and and turn it into something that can help you. But as catastrophic as that period of my life was, it is also the period in which I went from being a fan and student. I shouldn't say it that way. I would say I went from being a fan of human performance to a student of human performance. So I went from fine. It was something I could do and something I was interested in, uh, in terms of like, ah that's cool. You know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger is awesome to being like, okay, so why did Vershansky write this book, super training? And how does that apply to me? Like it was a complete paradigm shift of, um, uh, what's this archaic book? Dinosaur training. Who's this guy, Charles Poliquin? And and I, without though without that experience and those injuries, I would have never got onto the path of actually learning how to coach because I had to, and because I knew that. I think on some moral level, even if I didn't realize that at the time, I knew what had happened to me was wrong. You know, I knew that I'd been effed over by a system. And hung out to dry. And what was really interesting about it is, uh, I should have had what is referred to as a medical, uh, year in there. Like it'd be like the equivalent to everyone getting COVID years now. Um, I should have actually gotten additional year because of the, the level in which I was injured. Um, and that's something I think back to on occasion, that when they petitioned for that injury, I didn't know they even petitioned on my part. And I remember the new coach, because obviously my coach eventually got fired. I remember my new coach being like, ah, you know, we we submitted it and they just turned it down. And at the time, I was like, oh, okay. Again, too new, too young, too, too small town BC. I was like, oh, bummer. Uh, man, that, that really sucks. I, well, I guess I'm done then right um and now looking back on it being like you guys just wanted me gone because I represented this coach in this program that was dirty right like I didn't benefit from the dirt of that program that got the rules changed I was one of the casualties of a dirty program you know and and that's what people don't realize like our our program was dirty like you hear about those crazy stories of the NC2A is like uh, you know, like coaching to do anything to win, like you know, the coach giving kids a fedra, which is totally going to be a banned substance if they get caught. But being like, hey, you'll be all right at this meet. Get that qualifying national mark. Just get kids to nationals, right? That was our program. Like it was dirty, um, and it didn't, and it wasn't dirty in a way that was beneficial. It wasn't like like some big Texas football program with a million dollar booster. It was. happy meals because they were over competing you and not giving you enough stipend to, to live on. Right. Like we were the opposite. We were like this churn mill of just like disaster, how we produced as many good athletes out of that shit show as we did. I have no idea, like no idea because it was, it was crazy. Like, you know, and that was, I I get it. I get why Wyoming wanted a lot of us to uh, to vanish after that, because it was that's a black eye period on the University of Wyoming, because the administration I remember sitting in my uh, I remember sitting in the meeting with the athletic director uh an associate athletic director at the time and giving my post because they do a senior meeting like hey how was your experience at the university of wyoming mine was like a three hour long hey this is everything we did that was illegal and this is what happened to us as athletes oh by the way this also happened to all these other athletes and i remember after that man uh, Let's just put it this way. I graduated in 2001, and I've driven through Laramie, Wyoming once since then. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, go Pokes. (laughs) Well, that's an
0: interesting (laughs) parallel. Obviously, we'll talk about the tactical community in a little bit. I had a near career-ending back injury. Um, And again, it was was a compounding element. And on paper, I was doing a lot of things right, but I was – Unaware of the things that I was doing wrong, you know the 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 impact of sitting, for example, and you know the imbalance that creates. So picked up a basically a hypervent patient, you know, ended up straining my back, you know, tore like type two tear of um of my ligaments, and I think it was uh God I forget now, but lower lumbar, um yeah, massive bulges, etc., etc. Um, but it was not just the fact that the physical pain, which was agony, the the awareness all of a sudden of the mental health element of an injury. Now, all of a sudden, you've gone from riding in the back of a fire engine with a crew that you love, um, you know, with, with a sense of purpose, with a sense of identity, and now you're lying in a bed and you can't even pick up your three-year-old and you can't even put on your shoes. So what was the lowest point? What was the mental impact of going from number one in the world to I'm stuck in a cast for 12 plus weeks?
1: That's actually a really good question Um, because I ended up having to develop a mindset. Now, I don't know if the mindset developed then, or if I had to re-engage a mindset that I'd forgotten had been beneficial. Um, So when I spoke at Power Athlete a couple of years ago, uh, I used the term fantasy and they didn't like it. Like somehow fantasy had this connotation of like sexual, which F and A, man, like, (laughs) no fantasy is exactly that. It is fantasy. It is the idea of something greater. Like it's, it's not just a dream or this idea of goal setting. Like that's too tangible for where I had to go to deal with it. I had to live in a realm psychologically that did not exist. And, and fantasy is exactly what it was because there was aspects of how I visualized The process of recovery that were not attainable. They were, they were like superheroish, right? The same psychology I used to use as a kid training in in the woods in British Columbia to be a national championship track and field athlete is delusional, right? Like (laughs) there was no, there was nothing about who I was or where I was that connected to where I wanted to go. Like the the threads of connection did not exist. that people are like, oh, you were just very goal-oriented. No, I wasn't. (laughs) Like I would train and pretend I was in an Olympic stadium in Munich, standing in the woods in British Columbia. That's not goal setting. That's (laughs) ridiculous. (laughs) Right. So when I got injured, um, I had to dive into that that psychology. And it was two part. Um one part of it was very tangible because I have a tendency to be a a little too like, you know, straight edge from high school, right? Like, ah, rule follower. So there's that part of my personality that I can't deny is there. I have a tendency to be very square boxed in how I do stuff, but I made the conscious decision. Like, because when I was injured, um, it was really strange. Uh, I, it was it was amazing how quickly um, I lost my team because you know people have to and it, you know people that hear this don't think that this group of guys and girls were shitheads. It was they're still under the thumb of that program, right? So they're in the same boat I was. Like the pressure cooker never stopped for them. That coach never let up on them. They So they're trying to be 18, 19, 20 year olds. They they don't have the aptitude to be like, hey, we need to go check on Derek to see, you know, if he shit the bed or not today, right? Like they they have no idea. So for me, you know, I became really um, internalized, which thank God I grew up in such a small area. Um, You know, me and my, like we had a group of friends, but me and my brother were kind of it, right? Like that's, that was my only other person I did a lot of stuff with, you know? So I'm you know, very internalized, very self-reflective. And I remember making the decision um, out and I couldn't tell you if it was a divine influence of a thought or if it was really in me already, but I told myself that what I was going to become from that moment forward until I got through this was I was going to become the hero of a narrative and, and I wasn't a Joseph Campbell guy back then. I didn't know any of this stuff. I just, I told myself that, okay, this is my new story. I'm going to be the guy that overcomes this. Like whatever is happening to me right now, I want to get through it, overcome it, and then be like, hey, this is what I overcame, right? Like in my head, I was like creating this rocky narrative. Like I was going to be training in the, in the snow and Russia in my head and, and, like I, I was going to like blow people away by the fact that this wasn't going to hold me back. And I just, I started playing this reel in my head and it was not, it wasn't real. Like it was a real like a film, but it wasn't real R E A L. It was, it was purely fantasy. Like to the point where maybe I got lost in it a little bit at times, like just envisioning and, and rolling like this is what's going to happen. Now the tangible square side of that is I made, a, I made an honest decision because I was, I was going to be like it was going to be a long road. And, they, and I had people tell me right from the front side, this is not going to be easy for you. And I'm like, all right. So I made the decision that every day when I went into the training lab and I had to be around the therapists and I had to be around these medical professionals, that no matter how shitty, I was doing psychologically. And I didn't realize how important this was later on in life. And I told myself, no matter how shitty I feel and depressed and down and muddled I was, I would always go into that one hour space like it was training. I would always go in and be thankful, positive, and try to make their day better. Because I kind of knew that they were dealing with crappy people all day, right? People, because I wasn't the only injured guy they knew. So I made this decision that I would be super proactive and I'm not like a super happy-go-lucky guy. Like I, I don't come in and like just steal a room uh, with my voice, but I knew that if I was working one-on-one with somebody, I would never complain. I would never let them know how tough it was. And I would just be like, what do I need to do? How do we do this? What do you need from me? And that was my mantra. Um and there was days like I remember having, cause I had wire through my leg and all this weird stuff. And I remember passing out one time during therapy, cause they were doing this close manipulation. And I remember just like phasing out, like just, well, you know, I uh, wish I had a known to tap. I really did. Um, so I remember just like passing out and then waking up and then he's like, oh my God, did you pass out? You're like really white and pale. And I remember being like, oh, I'm good. And I and I can still to this day 20 years later I can feel immediately how horrible that like it was bad news pain and I've had a lot of surgeries but that therapy was brutal because there's wire going through my tibia and not realizing that it was just like basically doing a wire saw on the inside of my bone um so I probably should have like stopped earlier uh in terms of all that but uh but I'd always be like, no I'm good I'm good I just need a minute and that kind of became like my mantra after that. It's like, there's a lot of things in life um, that I'm good. I'm good. I just need a minute has helped me get through. Um, and, and like emotional stuff too. Like, and that minute can take some time. Like that. that may not be a, a 60 second minute. Like there's been times in my life where I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. I just need a minute you may not hear for a couple weeks right but I, it's cuz i'm dealing with it like the, there's stuff that's going on or stuff that i'm working through that i just need need some time and and now though the thing i didn't realize then that i've now have come to understand to be so beneficial that even though i was going in with this like falsified idea of like you know i'm going to be positive i'm going to help them i'm going to do this truthfully when i look back on it now Because I wasn't shut down when I went in there, it allowed them in. And the people that were coming in to help me without me realizing it were the people that were putting me back together also emotionally and psychologically, right? So like, yeah, they were fixing me physically, but some of that was just time, right? Like it's just injuries are time. But that hour, 90 minutes that I was with them and it was just casual conversation while they like manipulate a scar or they're doing stretches or trying to get you back on a bike, they're just chatting. But that chatting was fundamental to the healing of my emotional psychological state. They were, uh, I guess, like shrinks or psychologists without realizing it. Because over six months, you end up talking about real stuff. Like, you know, eventually there's a, a transition with with those people where it goes from being like, I'm hurt. This is my injury to crazy story about what they did on a Friday night, right? Or a crazy story about when they were 15 or 16, because they're bored. You're bored. You're going to have conversations, right? And, and if you just go in with the right psychology, which I did by accident, I did because I was creating this, this, this story in my mind, it, it, Peeled that onion a lot faster than it would have in another world, right? You know, I because I was open, they were open. The process of healing begun. And now, and I look back on all these things as an adult now, and it's like those are all like non-taught experiences of how you get through tragedy. You take a moment, stay open. Allow people in that are willing to help or can help. You don't make a big deal about some of it. Like, especially with some of the tragedy, emotional stuff, everyone wants to go too deep too soon, right? But if you can just kind of find a consistency where, yeah, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't with my team anymore on a regular basis, but I had a new team, you know, at a new team, the people were equally as invested, equally as uh, good in character or quality. Um, I would argue that I developed friendships with some of them that way outlasted the friendships I had from my teammates um, because maybe it was a more real relationship. You know, it wasn't just common goal, commonality experience. It was like real, tangible, emotional connection. Right, that was developed through unusual circumstance. Um, but I do know for sure wh- when I think about the question that you ask, and I kind of go back on it, and now having been retired for so long, what's really funny about it is being ranked number one in the world didn't necessarily bring any more joy. Than the process of recovering from that injury. And that's really a strange thing that when I try to explain that to people, it's hard for them to understand that the injury messed up my trajectory, but it didn't change my success. Right. It it um it just created a lot of different scenarios in which I had to work through and a lot of different paths that I had to, to experience. But there's no way that I would have been as successful as a coach today had I not have been injured, which is really strange. Um, Did I miss the Olympics because of it? Yeah, I, I can logically as a professional coach now say you got injured in 2000. That one was out. You were pissed you didn't make it in 04 because you were an alternate, but let's be honest, you only trained for two years, right? Because you spent 2000 to 2002 going through rehab style training. So you had 24 months and you just missed the Olympics in 04. You broke a national record in 05 and you logically knew that you weren't going to train for three more years to have a what if. You didn't go to the Olympics. At the time, it was hard to swallow that pill, but as a logical adult now, I'm like, Holy shit, I had a pretty good career, all things considered, right? But some of that takes time to figure out, right? Um, and you have to hopefully have enough emotional support along the way that you don't fall off the cliff before you come to the realization that, oh, yeah, life is long, right? It's there's a lot that happens in it. Um, but yeah, it's uh that's a weird one for people to understand that being in a hip cast laid up on a medical bench at the university of Wyoming at times is some of my fondest memories of that three years of university. And then, you know, cause you don't feel pain every day, even when you're in pain, you don't feel it every day. It's, it's kind of a weird thing after the fact. So you end up like getting used to your scenario and your circumstance. And then it becomes about who you meet in that period. And they were good people, you know, that crew was good crew.
0: Well, I'm, firstly, I'm glad I asked that question. That was a that was an amazing story. And just to pull one thing out of it, that one hour window, when I look back, because I had a back injury, and then I had meniscus surgery a few years later, and then the other knee a couple of years after that, still rehab back with uh, you know the back injury with no surgery at all. The other two with a you know meniscus snip, and then rehab back to full duty all times. And what I realized looking back. You get the you know, the people that have the laser surgery in the backs, you know, and they and they, oh, you'll be up on your feet. There's no period of you processing that injury, of having that time with that person. I think especially the autonomy of giving yourself a plan. And I agree with you, the visualization. To me, it was never like, oh, I'm I'm not gonna be a firefighter again. It's just like, how, how am I going to be a firefighter again? Because my friends that have had surgery walk with canes now. I'm not fucking doing that, no matter what you tell me. And that was my first thing, you know, surgery meds. Fuck you and fuck you. It's not gonna, we're not doing it this way. 100%.
1: Yep. But
0: then you go, okay, well, then I'm going to do my PT four times a week. I'm going to pay for chiropractic. I've discovered foundation training, which was absolutely groundbreaking and my trajectory went from 15% to like 45 you know degrees 15 degrees to 45 degrees as far as the improvement you know now I'm I'm kind of PVC pipe and then empty barbell and then working out that way but that whole journey and those tribes in each of those offices the PT the Cairo my gym, as you said, that's filling the place of your fire department, your sports team. And sometimes they're better, you know, but yeah. now yes, you are yeah. in control versus you're yeah. waiting for a doctor. You're waiting for workman's comp to let you know when you're going to have your surgery, when you're going to have your appointments. And instead, you're like, nah, this is my body. I'm going to start doing the things that I want. So between that 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 community that you forged and that sense of purpose, that being in charge of your own well-being, those are two extremely kind of powerful things that I pull from from what you just told us.
1: It's essential. And I didn't realize how important it would be until actually much later on. So in 2015, when I was working for the Saudi government, I got clipped in the back of the leg at work one day. And I was like, oh, that kind of hurt. Didn't really think much of it three weeks later, I'm in Irvine, California working out and I blow up my Achilles tendon. Right. And I was like, Jesus, I tore my Achilles. This sucks. Right. Didn't think I was like, man, I thought I was going to dodge this bullet. So at the time I didn't think anything of it. Right. Go to the doctor. They're, They're like, oh yeah, we'll do a little quick surgery. Cool. Get back to Colorado at the time. They go in, the doc's like, ah, super weird. I've never seen an Achilles tendon that looked like it was cut by a razor blade. So then I'm like, oh, yeah, I got hit in the back of the leg. You know, that was probably the initial injury. And then it just snapped. No big deal, right? Surgery goes great. Everything's awesome. I got like a six to 12 week projection before I'm like, you know, walking with a lifted heel. Things are cool. Everyone that I knew had had no problems. Week six ish catastrophic freak accident, right? Completely out of my control. Reruptured the same Achilles tendon. Oh, this is going to be weird. Doc's like, oh, this is strange. Well, no big deal. We'll go in, do a little graft. (laughs) Seven months later, I'm in the wound clinic at St. Joe's Hospital having conversations about having my foot amputated like it couldn't have gone worse right like what are the chances and i remember like talking to the wound care specialist cuz i'm doing like the huge hyperbaric tank with like in my mind people with real problems like you know cancer in the face and cancer in the throat and we're we're getting in the big tank every day for 30 days and we're going under you know uh under pressurized you know healing processes like you know, like serious shit. And, uh, and I'm like all this for a hole in my leg, like, and the doc's like, well, it's not that you have a hole in your leg. It's the fact that the hole in your leg will not heal. And we're afraid that you're going to eventually get a severe infection. Cause I was about an inch gap by an inch length right to the tendon tendon should have been dead by all accounts because it's not supposed to get exposed to air apparently. Um, so I was living with that. That was my day-to-day life for almost a year. But like you said, you become self-accountable. So I remember, like, just dealing and dealing and dealing with it, and you know, treatments and therapies and like wound care, just all this garbage. And I and I was still trying to work back and forth to Saudi, so I'd have the hole all packed and protected, and I was walking with a limp and whatever. Um, I was out of a boot, but I, I it was had this big open wound and a non-functioning left ankle. Yeah, uh, and I got back. And the wound care doctor's like, he gave me the speech. He's like, all right, so this is what amputation is and yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, what we'll probably have to do is remove the bottom lower half of your left leg up to the bone, let it heal, close it all up, let it heal. And then maybe six to 10 months from now, we'll evaluate it. I can still remember the conversation. And we might have to take the helicus longest ligament out of your big toe and we'll try to make like a workaround Achilles tendon. Oh, so basically a completely useless left leg for the rest of my life. Oh, okay. I got it. Yeah. I've had this conversation. Didn't like it the first time. Right. So I, uh, I went down a rabbit hole, like self self self-driven because I didn't have any support system at this time. Right. Like I was, I was on my own, just my brother and his his wife were about the only people I was talking to about it at the time. And so I'm like, there's gotta be a solution. And so I started to study wounds, like just deep dive into wounds and how the cells form and how they close and all this stuff. And, uh, and I remember the doc was like, Hey, you know, maybe try calling a, a lymph therapist to push the lymph out. Cause the back of my leg looked like a block of old cheese. I was like, lymph. Okay. So that took me down another road. And, uh, and I ended up creating <laughs> the so ridiculous, but I ended up creating like, uh, a cream out of Manuka honey mixed with certain amino acids. So I created that myself. And then I also started studying all these peptides and the relationship to wound healing. And then I got a hold of like the cream, the Tremel cream. I found the injectable version in Germany. So I got all this stuff figured out. So I'm putting this like self-made amino acid cream into the wound, which they now believe prevented any infection. And that's what was creating the barrier that protected the tendon. And it was, it was good. It kept that wound healthy. But then I went down this peptide path and started talking with this uh, doctor I knew. And I remember like three weeks later, it closed for the first time in like almost a year, like closed right up. I go into the wound care clinic and he's like, what changed? I remember he was just like, kind of like confused. I'm like, so this is what I'm doing. Like just unloaded this like crazy protocol of injections and shit I was doing myself. And he's like, Whoa, I can't hear this. Like he's older, dude. I can't hear this. And he's like, walks out of the room. I was like, all right, cool. Whatever. Yeah. I don't care at this point. I'm like, I've been down this road, comes back in like 10 minutes later and just put a notepad and a pen in front of me. And he's right. He said, write down everything that you did, wrote it down. Never did have a conversation about it. I wrote down the peptides I used, the Manuka honey mixture I was packing the wound with and, uh, in the amino acids and the tremel injectable, you can get anywhere, but the United States gave it all to him and and never really spoke to him again because a week later, I never attended another wound care clinic. It was closed. Right. So it's like, I, but I don't think I would have had the mindset to be able to self solve that problem. If that was my first injury, like I, I just really don't think I would have. I like as much as I hate getting blown up in college that broke the cycle the same for me right like after that i I just didn't i didn't necessarily believe that the system had all the answers yeah a system fails you once you won't let it fail you twice typically right and if you do it's on you you know
0: have you researched that doctor make sure he's not made millions on your wound
1: care Dude, it wouldn't be the first. Let's just put it that <laughs> way. It wouldn't be the first. There are a lot of people in the fitness industry sitting on fat cash because of shit that I probably shouldn't have told them. Like, that is the God's honest truth. I've joked about that with some people on, like, the inner circle on occasion. I'm like, you know how many people are millionaires right now because they know how to market stuff that I thought was just information, right? Like, ugh. the 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 vein of my existence i'm just glad that not all of them completely deny where the information comes from
0: (laughs) yeah it's i mean this this podcast is free you know there's no patreon no vip Mm -hmm. access or anything for that reason like to me and you know each to their own i'm not not slandering anyone else but for me i want this to be open source for anyone who understands english and has a wi-fi connection but um you know also it's people like you lending their stories lending their work now imagine for me then me charging <laughs> for someone to listen to you <laughs> that just seems wrong to me so that's that's my ethics but yeah i mean i've seen that you know even with with foundation training you know some deliberate some by accident you know people are doing the same exact movements and not crediting eric for his work so you know i mean right. it's one thing if it's open source you know using it um you know, and and giving credit, and I see this even with, with some podcasts. Some people now, not naming any names, are monologuing, masquerading as experts in everything. And I've had some of these experts whose work they're citing on the show, and have never heard that person credited with that original work. So even with that, you know, the, in the podcast space, people are taking other people's work and kind of saying, you know, in my lab, in my whatever. We do this, this, and this. Right. It's like, yeah, but you know, but who who did it first? Should we talk about you know, that as well? Not instead, just I, as well.
1: And I don't know if it's as much a generational thing that's happening or if it is just uh the sabotage of social media, like because I'm a big I like social media. I've learned so much more in the last 10 years than I could have learned in the first 20. Like, so there's like I'm not an anti-social media guy. Like, there was times where I'd be like, ah, social media. It's amazing. If used correctly, it is amazing. We're having this conversation, we're able to share stories that are much broader than we could have ever shared before. Uh good and bad, right? And so but it's there's something that's happened where like I still reference even though it has no impact on his life. I will still reference some old strength coach shit some of which have been you know Out of this astral plane for 20 years, I'll still reference them because it's like the old saying, you die twice the day of your death and the day that no one ever says your name again. And to me, it is tragic that there are these brilliant concepts that were taught to us in different industries that people stop referencing right? Because it's like they're afraid it's going to dilute their expertise, not realizing that you're not diluting or diminishing yourself by referencing the, the mentor lineage of your information, but you're actually putting yourself, if done correctly, into the same pedigree as those that developed the systems in the first place, right? So you, like, do you want to be the guy that no one remembers that made some money? Or do you want to be remembered as the person connected to the lineage that changed everything? You know, like I would rather be connected to Judd Logan for life now that he's gone through my stories of Judd and my athlete stories of me through Judd than to just be a, another asshole that, uh, you know, made a, a couple quick bucks off of, my mentor's information. Right. And th- and that's what people like in this generation of, of marketing. And I say generation, let's call it four years, five years. And now the last AI year in particular, they're not referencing, like they're just not. And, and I don't understand. I, I know it's because it's so grossly competitive and people are so afraid or they're just rushing. And, and I get some of that's happening. Like they're, they're, there's such pressure to put out content that they're not taking the time to, to dot the I's and cross the T's, which a lot of that is referencing the origin. Um, but it's going to be eventually the detriment because what'll happen is 10, 15 years from now, we will lose information. We'll just flat out lose it. The books will be lost. They didn't get reproduced. Um, It didn't get put into a digital form and it becomes this obscure thing like, you know, dinosaur training becomes obscure. And then some person will find it, know what to do with it, repackage it and sell it like it's never been sold before. And they'll either do the right thing like Ben Patrick has done with Knees Over Toes, like he's doing the right thing. He is referencing Charles Poliquin. He's referencing his mentors in education. And people were pissed when Ben blew up with knees over toes. People were pissed from that industry because they're like, how dare you? And it's like, how dare him? You're just pissed because he's making a million bucks. uh, You know, hypothetically, I don't know how much he makes, but he's making a million bucks off an idea and actually referencing the sources. While meanwhile, you guys couldn't make $10 off of you know, anything related to that industry acting as if you created it. Right. So long story short, um, it is, that's, that's a big concern for me. Like I still reference college professors I had for Christ's sake and that there's no reference that's needed, right? They literally signed up to give you the information, um, you know, quote unneeded, but I still think of like important things that I'll pass along, and be like, ah, you know, I had this professor at this time say this, and this was paramount to my, you know, intercommunications uh, education. This is why. And it's like, well, why does that matter that you told us about that person? Because someday he's going to be dead. And if I don't take the time to recognize his significance in the continued, Projection of information or successive information, then I'm doing a disservice. I'm a piece of shit, and I don't, I don't know why people struggle with that. I really don't. Like, is it so hard, you know? But the me now generation also isn't thinking about where they'll be 30 years from now. Absolutely.
0: Well, you talked about Charles Poliquin. Um, I had Ben on the on the show, Ben Patrick. I actually went down to Clearwater and we did a a workout oh, right first, on. and then and then a, a conversation. It was amazing. But I also heard him on Tim Ferriss' podcast, which is one of the ones I credit to the creation of this one.
1: Um, I got a crazy Tim Ferriss story. I'll tell you after this.
0: Okay, beautiful. I'm I'm excited to hear that as well. But um. Charles, again, seems to be like one of the most revered figures for people who are truly passionate about strength and conditioning. But again, one of the lesser names. I mean, you talked about Arnold. Oh, you lift weights? Oh, Arnold. Um, So talk to me about, you know, you, you had these injuries. You've gone into this kind of discovery of, you know, how did I get hurt? How do I get stronger? How do I fix? How do I coach? How do I forge my own performance to get back to where I was? Um, and then your journey into Charles's work, and kind of you know educate the audience on some of the principles that maybe most are unaware sure. of.
1: So Charles was an interesting one because he came a little bit later in my life. So in 2001, the internet was kind of like becoming a thing. You had like Testosterone Nation online. Uh, TC Loma, I think started that, and Charles was one of his writers or ghost writers, whatever you want to call it. Um, Charles had already had a huge amount. Of Olympic coaching success in Canada. He was the, the general head coach for Athletics Canada Winter Sports back then. And he just kind of made the transition into the U.S. At this time, I have no idea who this man is. Like, I have no connection to Charles. So in 2001, uh, I stumbled across uh, his articles on T-Nation. And, you know, you know, at this time, people have to understand I'm right out of that knee injury in college. So I'm at Eastern Michigan University, first coaching job, you know, as green as green could be in a new world. But I'm also like, oh, man, that support staff at Wyoming was awesome. And now I got to do it myself. Right. So thank God for the Internet. People say what they want. Thank God for the Internet. So I get online. start reading all these articles. And he was just one of many that I, I was reading at the time, but I'm like, oh, this guy's Canadian. You know, he's had success with athletes that names I recognized. And at the same time, my brother was at Ashland university training with Judd Logan. And I was at Eastern Michigan, Ypsilanti and Ashland, not too far apart. So I'd start going down and seeing my brother. It's kind of the reason I took the job out East anyway, because my brother was already out that way, Midwest, Mideast, you know, just starting to stretch it out there. Um, and so I'd go down. I started hanging out with Judd, and so watching Judd coach and watching how you know he was developing these athletes—the same sport, obviously, was through the same event. And Judd's like, you know, would talk about this guy Charles Poliquin. And I'm like, oh, I'm reading his articles on TMAG. He's like, yeah. He goes, I started working with Charles in the '90s. He goes, uh, a guy from New Zealand, Angus Cooper, who was a hammer thrower, became a bobsleigh, uh, Had met Charles at the University of Calgary in like 88 and, uh, you know, was good friends with Judd teammates in college, the world gets small, very fast. So years later, Angus tells Judd, Hey, you need a strength coach to get you to your fourth Olympics. Charles Poliquin is the guy. So Judd, you know, figures out who Charles is. Magazines were kind of the only way to track him down back then, sent him a letter in the mail, uh, up at that time, up to Ottawa uh, Charles agrees to meet with him. He goes up, meets with Charles, you know, Charles, is not the easiest guy to get along with, but they found common ground, right? Like Charles was a hard dude. Um, and so then Jed starts doing Charles's programs and, and Jed was a meticulous, uh, student of the sport. So he starts to study and understand starts to compare it to his Anatoly Bondarchuk Russian methodology, who he had got firsthand from Anatoly at the time you know, and started to come up with his own systems for his training and his athletes based on his good and long relationship with Charles. You know, so he started working with Charles in the nineties. I started working with Judd in 2001 into 2002. So he had had a lot of time to decipher Charles's systems. And so I'm getting like a double dose of like education, so I'm learning this stuff. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna start training one more year. I'm gonna give myself one more year of training. I moved to Ashland in the in the fall of 02. And now I'm training directly under Judd. And Judd's like, hey, Charles has got a training center down in Tempe, Arizona. You wanna come with me down there and we'll meet him? I'm like, oh, this is crazy. Yeah, of course. So I jump on a plane with Jed. we fly down to Arizona, we go into his training center. And what it was, we were going to interview him for this uh, magazine that I wrote for called Long Strong Thrower's Journal. And so I'm like meeting Charles for the first time. And this is a different Charles than like the Poliquin Institute Charles. Like this isn't the lecturer bio Charles, this is the... I you know, get paid a lot of money to work with NHL athletes in the off season, Charles, like it was very closed door. Everything was very secretive. Um, he was, he was developing concepts that he hadn't spoke to anybody about. And so it was interesting to meet him in that, in that regard. I, uh, and then to get to do his programming, you know, cause he was still helping Joe a program designed for Olympic athletes. And so that was an eye-opener. And that was how I met Charles. I met him as an athlete. I didn't work for him at that time. Nothing. I was just, I was on my path. He was on his. So we stayed in touch, you know, not often. Every once in a while, I'd send him stuff, ask him for his opinion, but mostly it was all through Judd. And then God, years later, so 2010, he, he rings me up and he's like, Hey, I was talking to Judd would you be interested in coming on board with the Poliquin, uh, you know, Poliquin performance in Rhode Island? We've started this lecture series where we teach a curriculum and we also do a thing called biosignature, which is a methodology to try to establish baseline body fat. And at the time I was super open to it because, you know, it's a great opportunity. And I was like, yeah, that would be, that'd be amazing. Um, and so I went out to Rhode Island in 10, uh, and sat through one of his lectures for a week. And then like, man, it was a month later, I was in Denmark teaching Poliquin Principles Level 1 uh, with Andre Benoit. And that went on for another four years. And I became their head instructor for Poliquin Systems. And I got to know Charles really well. And, And Charles and I disagreed on a lot, but it was like, when I look back on it, it was never the information it was always business, right? So I was working for a company that was owned by a husband and wife that hated each other. And that's just the truth, right? So we were like a bunch of children stuck in a domestic disagreement. She had the fun, she had the, the checkbook and he had the information. And if you sided too hard with the information, they threatened you with the checkbook, right? And if you lean too hard in the checkbook, Charles being Charles, would you know come down hard on you um you know so that was a tough time for us all to work there and it inevitably the system fell apart but the charles i knew had so much information that i got exposed to that we never got to share with the students even because i got it as an athlete and i got it with no strings attached and so on the road, we would often, Charles and I would often talk about training in relationship to athletes, not so much the curriculum that we were teaching to the students. Because that could that was, you know, that was white belt, you know, that was like day three uh shrimping in jujitsu, right? Like that's that's kind of what you have to teach. But when you're sitting, you know, for like hour four in an airport talking about whoever from the NHL and what he did in 1989 because of this scenario, you know that's master's level, you know that's that's Gracie level understanding of a thing and and I'm extremely thankful even with all the difficulties that the business had that I had to kind of go through, that I was able to spend so much time on the road with Charles and and be able to connect the dots between what Charles was thinking, what Judd was translating and what we were experiencing. And it allowed me to have those like that lineage understanding, you know, because there was times in real-time training, I was doing what Charles was philosophizing, you know, like exercise that will never make it into a Poliquin institute education 101. N- I mean, even Ben never got taught this Um, with something as ridiculous as, and and I'll have to do a video so people can see it, a hovering hamstring. If I did a hovering hamstring in a Poliquin course, they'd be like, no, that's impossible. Charles doesn't believe in that. Right. And I'm like, you're correct. He doesn't believe in it for the sake of the curriculum in which you're learning today. But for a world-class discus thrower with this scenario, This is what he had us do with them. The reason he's not going to have you do it is because it's going to take a hundred hours to justify the explanation. And it's the explanation is easy. The justification of why is not. And that is what we always, always ran into when it came time for Apollo Quinn to go from being a full-time coach to an educator. He had to justify everything. And the justification and human performance to make people stop sending a million emails is exhausting, right? And and that's also the internet era, right? Because he became a curriculum-driven educator during the internet era. You know, the magazine era. Good luck getting a hold of the guy in Colorado Springs. You know, he was elusive, and it almost built the mystery and myth. Uh, mythology of poliquin right being this elusive super expensive cutting-edge coach out in colorado springs charging a thousand an hour for a consult right which he could because he was elusive but now now it's like hey so we do the hovering hamstring because a b and c awesome that's the reason and it works and it works every single time we've ever done it with athletes And then someone will go, oh, Poliquin doesn't stand on soft surfaces. I heard him say this one time. He said it's bullshit. And it's like, yeah, you're right. He does joke that unstable surfaces are only good for people that work out on cruise ships. Yeah, I remember the joke, right? But in this circumstance, in this situation, this is the answer to that salute or that problem. Yeah. And then you got a hundred hours of justifications after that and everyone trying to burn your house down. Right. And that was what people often forget that we were dealing with in those early era, you know, and now it's become so saturated that people are going to burn your house down. Even if you give them the, the answers to the world, right. People just hate the hate. I mean, shit, we don't even know if it's a person or if it's a robot from some Russian bot farm that is just stirring up (laughs) social disinterest. Right. But it's uh, it, that period of time was so, so beneficial. Like people don't realize the amount of brilliant coaches we got to uh, be exposed to. Like, you know, I'd go lecture in uh, Denmark, say, uh, say I'm in Copenhagen. I walk into a room in Copenhagen during the Poliquin era of education. Um, and it's kind of what Jordan shallow is going through now, which is brilliant. It's like, uh, you know, you walk into a room and you're going to, Be the center speaker for the next three days on level one or the next five days or whatever on level one and two back then. But you're going to have 16, 17, maybe 20 high level coaches from all over the personal training world. You know, there's going to be Australians and Germans and Italians and and Scandinavians. They're not slouches, right? So, like, I remember lecturing to those courses and the questions I would get. Like, not like the justification bullshit questions, like in-depth application understanding. What about this? How would you do this? Is this an option? Questions were so brilliant by these coaches and students that were coming up at the time, some of which Ben Patrick's have gone on to to be hugely successful. You'd be like, holy shit, this is making me such a better strength coach. Because there would be days where you'd be like, oh, I don't know. I really don't know the answer. So what do you do? If you're not a douchebag, you go out and you learn the answer and you ask the questions and go to the people that might have it and and trickle that lineage back down. And the next time the question comes up, you got the answer. So by like 200 days a year on the road, by like your 800th day of lecturing, there's not much you haven't heard, right? And it just makes you a better teacher. Um, and I think the people that can ex- could have and and can experience that type of uh, development as a coach or whatnot. It's invaluable. Like that, people are like, "Hey, how'd you become such a good, you know, public speaker?" And I'm like, "You know, 600 days of Poliquin lecturing. I mean, I just cut my teeth in shitholes all over the world, right? Like, there was no, there was no social media shortcut for that one. You know, that was a lot of airplanes." <laughs> missed missed connections and terrible hotels for sure you know
0: well i yeah. want to walk through into the tactical athlete
1: space but just before we do tim ferris so crazy re- connecting it to poliquin um <laughs> do you remember uh tim ferris had his initial big hit of success from a product called brain quicken
0: um, Does I've that heard even him
1: resonate. I've
0: heard him talk about it. I, I wasn't aware of that. I think it was the podcast that I found first, but I, I do know that that was
1: kind of one of his big kind of entrepreneurial things that worked. Crazy, right? And he was like a one man show back then. He did everything. Like he was answering the phones, he was sending the products. It was like, so in the 2002, 2003, I guess, Adam Nelson who went on to be an Olympic gold medalist in the US in a shot put. He was a Dartmouth grad. So he was connected to some of these like venture capitalists buddies of his and guys that were kind of on the inside of a lot of really cool stuff. And Adams always kind of was always that way. So he goes to us, he goes, Hey, there's this thing called like back then nootropics were not a catch term. Like there was not alpha brain. There was, there's not all these people just slinging shit. Right. And people buying it, right? So it was it was a pretty obscure world. Nonetheless, (laughs) he comes up to us. We're out out in California training. He's like, "There's this thing called a nootropic. Maybe Uh, a buddy of mine got me hooked on it. It's called Brain Quicken. They, you know, now I know the marketing genius of it. It was the exact same product, two different labels, Brain Quicken, or I think." body quicken, right? <laughs> like based on who you're selling it to nerds or jocks, right? You bought one bottle or the other. And, uh, we're like, Oh, what is it? Right. And he's like, Oh, here, I got some pills. And it was like really like shady. Right. So he like gave me some pills. I took <laughs> these pills. I drank a red bull. I'm like, what is this stuff? And I remember just being like, "Whoo, this is a, I'm pretty lit up, right? Like this is weird. So I do my own research. I get home from that trip. And back then I was blogging, but blogs didn't exist. So basically I was writing a journal on the internet right, which eventually would become blogs, you know the old saying don't be first or last, be successful in the middle. I was first and last on a lot of that stuff. So so nonetheless, I, I search it out on the internet and I come across a website, Brain uh, body alive, Brain quick and whatever, brain quicken. and I reach out, email, get this email back you know, obviously Tim Ferriss, you know, not having any connection to who this is. I just some dude with supplements and I'm like, Hey, I have this little website. It's called gashead.org. It's like track and field, blah, blah, blah. I tried your supplement. I thought it was really cool. I think it works. I'd like to try it again. Sent me a couple bottles. Then Tim back then being the marketing genius he would become is like, Hey, have you ever heard of a hyperlink and or embedding code into your website that you could get affiliate sales from. And I'm like, no, never heard of it. What is this magic that you speak of? So he sent me the like block of HTML code and I put it into my website, gashead.org. And magically people could click on this photo (laughs) that showed up and I'd get a referral sale. Right. And I remember like, it it didn't make much. It did. Okay. Right. Like I didn't know how to market it. I just put it as a banner on a, on my pages, but he would call every few months that year. And, uh, and be like hey how's things going what do you think of the product and then we would like i, I have this clear memory because he was such a good conversationalist i was like wandering around in my backyard of the thrower's house where all these olympic development athletes were living it was like animal house right so there's i'm wandering around in the backyard talking on like uh, an actual portable so i couldn't get too far from the house because i'd lose my signal but i was i was just wandering around just talking about like random stuff with this guy who I just remember being like, man, that guy from brain quick is really nice. It's about as much credit as I gave the thought. And, uh, so this would have been in 2003, 2004, 2005, kept using it, kept training in Ashland follow 2005. I move out to Southern Colorado. Took a job as a a track coach. Started on a new journey in life. I was like, ah, this website, it doesn't make me any money. It was just a hobby. Let it go. Right? Whatever. Didn't know anything about anything. So that would have been (laughs) 06. Let's jump ahead. To 2010, I have lost track of all this stuff now. I've been coaching. I went back to school for a bit. I worked in the NFL. Totally different life trajectory. Got married in there for a bit. Like, holy shit, life couldn't be different, right? Um, two, 2010, I get picked up in Melbourne, Australia by uh, Kat uh, Lorrazo, I think is her last name. She's been quite successful since... But I can't. I hope I'm not butchering Kat's last name. So she's like, I'm working for Poliquin. It's my first overseas uh, on my own lecture series after Denmark, and she's going to be the kind of like my host. Pick me up from the hotel. Take me to the venue. So I'm like driving around with her and she's like just clued in like a lot of the Australians are. Have you heard about this thing, the four hour work week? It's by this guy, Tim Ferriss. It's going to change the world. It's changing our lives. And I'm like in the car, like just, like kind of like the old meathead, just like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, four hours work, huh? Yeah, whatever. You ever heard about 30 years of hard driving, steel lifting? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, just, just like, yeah, whatever, lady. So, so this goes on and she, we talk about it. And finally at the end of it, I'm like, yeah, maybe. So I go from there to Perth and then I'm flying home. So I am in the airport in Perth, Australia. And I'm looking at the bookshelf. And sure enough, there's a hardback, four hour work week. I'm like, ah, I've been here a month. I got like forever to get home. I'm going to buy this book. Buy the book. Still no clue. Like there is no neurological connection to Tim Ferriss (laughs) and this book and me at all. Like nothing. Like I zero. And I remember sitting coach jammed in, in the middle of this flight. And I was going to fly to New Zealand, then home and I like I'm reading the forward of Four Hour Work Week, and it's Tim talking about how he kind of got into where he's at now, and he goes blah blah blah. And I remember just reading the lines when I developed the company and the product Brain Quicken. is like right in that first like section, and I remember like like closing the book and just being like fuck. Right. It just <laughs> like totally, totally like just crushed by the fact that I completely disconnected from this life I'd been living. And, and I just, all these thoughts just started coming through of like who this was, what he went on to do. And I remember having like the clear and like solid thought in my head of like, never lose. Cause back then, yes, you know, previous pre-cell phones. God damn it. Never lose your black book of phone numbers again. Like it was just because it was all handwritten people like in a a Rolodex. Like he was literally in my equivalent to a Rolodex. He was a number on a piece of paper. And it probably said if I could think back to it it would have been like Tim supplement guy phone number. Like, Like that's probably what I had it written down as. And I remember at that moment just being like, wow. Like how crazy is the world that he is a guy that I would talk to on the phone every now and again. And I always remember thinking, man, that was a good dude, but just never put all the pieces together to fricking six years later on a plane out of Perth, Australia. I'm like, wow, that guy went on to be successful. I, remember, like, I just remember making that connection and being like, man, I shouldn't have lost touch with that one. Right? Yeah. It was funny, but it was lesson learned. But at the same time, I was like, wow, that's cool. Like, I, I just, I would have never thought that he would have gone on at the time. I just never thought that he was on the kind of uptrend of his own world, you know? Yeah. So it was cool.
0: Amazing. Yeah. He's someone I still <laughs> yeah. want to get on the show. We'll see. But uh, I mean, his own kind of mental health journey amongst many other things is is pretty powerful. So uh, it
1: it is like. Talk about a guy that's had a profound impact on society through the medium of social media, you know, or whatever the whole connective thing is, right? Like he's, and I hope that people don't steal from him and which they already have, because I've seen the courses over and over without connecting that lineage, you know, like there was another guy that sought out the best of the best learned from them to write books referencing them. Like, talk about as legit old school lineage as you can get as Tim Ferriss.
0: Yeah. Well, and what makes it so important as well is that then you send the reader like, oh, this one person resonated with me. Well, now you know you can go down their rabbit hole, which is, I mean, this obviously this podcast is the same. We spend, you know, two, three hours, whatever it ends up being, and then people are like, holy shit, you know, that's scraped the surface of Derek's work. I'm going to go dive into his now. Whereas, you know, I just monologue about what I learned from this quote-unquote fitness guy I just spoke to and go to jamesgearing.com yep. to subscribe to my 12-week program on how to be
1: awesome. <laughs> 100%, right? <laughs> like, I always joke, I'm like, uh, you know, it's there's amazing amount of free information out there, but... <laughs> it's minuscule or it's micro in the level of free marketing that's out there you know and and that's that's where people i think sometimes run into trouble it's like is there was it free information or was it free marketing because you know buyer beware like uh you know I think it was uh I can't remember the name of the book, which tells you how I felt about it, but there was an author a couple uh a couple years back released a book, and he was one of these guys that his book came on the heels of after of creating a supplement that became quite sub, quite popular ironically enough, and it was funny because when I read his book. And the things that he had written about, and he, he's been quite successful in the last five years, it was 100% stolen information with no reference, right? And this is a guy that the new generation of social media followers really attach themselves to. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> I just wrote 100- something down. <laughs> yeah, 100% and and I remember like cuz I read the book, right? And and I remember like getting halfway through it and being like man, you, you've made millions of dollars stealing information. This is wild. And that was an eye opener for me. Um because it, like you could tell he stole from Tim You could, I, there were sections of the book that were Poliquin. There were set, there was a section of the book, which was my presentations I gave of Poliquin and I'm like, I don't even know this guy and he doesn't know me. And, and that was, and that's kind of when I knew in the last five years, social media, like there's a bunch of forks in the road, but I was realizing that some some were going to go a direction that probably I wasn't going to be able to go down, right? Like there, those roads will take them to somewhere else, and that's fine. Um, you know, it is what it is. But that it, it was about five years ago where I was like, Ugh, "Okay, so I, I see that there, we have to be a little more uh, discerning about the paths we take using this medium." You know, because it's, you know, I didn't realize that if you have venture capital behind you. And you buy your own first fifty thousand books that you sell, you become a New York Times bestseller, right? Like I, you know, like there's just some interesting, eye-opening situations. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. speaking of paths, you, as you said, you end, ended up coaching in the sporting world: NFL, NHL, Cleveland Browns. We were talking about the other day. I'm actually off to Cleveland uh, about three weeks, funny enough. But um, you find yourself. Walking into the tactical space, so firstly, yeah. from your own perception as you know as a responder and you were talking about you know volunteerism earlier as well what you know what took you down that road
1: so I think there's always been a healthy curiosity um personality wise like you know to say that you know I wasn't a kid that fantasized and visualized about the idea of you know, the hero's journey. Right. I think that's always been a bit of an underlining tone for my life. The idea of like, if I'm called upon, will I react? If I'm called upon, will I respond accordingly and in a way in which I can be proud of? Right. Um, So I think there's always been that part of me. Uh, My mom had a lot of brothers, has a lot of brothers. Um, At least 50% of them were somehow involved, with either uh, fire EMT, uh, one was EMT Sheriff's Department in Canada, which is a little bit different, you know, so like their stories were, there, they were stories that I, I, I envied as a child, right. They all get together. All the brothers are one-upping. I mean, it's, it's enticing, right. It's, 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 it's an interesting world to be a part of. So uh, I'd always had that And then what I found is as I was moving through the human performance world, I was, you know, especially after 20 years of war in this country, you know, we were starting to get a lot of guys coming home with injuries that I was crossing paths with because they were still young athletic dudes. So they would come out of military service, uh, special operations or special forces or or, uh, general enlistees would come back in. They're like, oh, you guys are young dudes, but you're pretty dinged up. Right. And they would often for the camaraderie either end up in a, the CrossFit world, which then you would get some of that carry over into just general uh, human performance populations. So you'd start to meet them and you start to work with them. And you'd, some, you know, were pretty dinged up. Some were just, you know, like, hey, I lift weights now because this is awesome and I'm an active guy. But you start to, to interact with that community. And a lot of those guys would come out of service and then go back into service and the policing, et cetera. So you start to get this big amalgamation of these personalities. And and I found that I just had more in common with them uh, and those types of people than I did with a lot of other folks. You know, they uh, they weren't soft uh, in the sense that um, they weren't easily damaged by superficial dings, right? Like you could shoot the shit and laugh and joke and be ruckus with them. And, and it was good. It was camaraderie. It was funny. It was uh, when they were down or when they were hurt and they were honest about it. Right. Like you could just really get to the soul of a person pretty fast because they'd seen some shit. Right. So I found that I related to them really well. And they reminded me a lot of, my, my uncles, I guess at some level. So like, I I was always drawn to that and drawn to people of that like, uh, quilt. Right. So that, that definitely was always there. And then as I came out of my like government contract and my government contract opened me up to opportunity that was a little bit different. Like when I started working in Saudi Arabia, it was only about two years in that I got offered the opportunity to go into executive protection side of things right so here I was a strength coach and let's be honest the reason why they introduced me in retrospect to the EP side of that job is because I was completely oblivious to how at danger my client was to terrorist attacks that's that's just a fact I had no clue I was like yeah maybe right but once that they lifted the blinders off I was like oh, oh, okay. So then I just like on the job training, it was like FTOs for EP work under some really good dudes from the UK. And I really liked it. So So I got into EP work over there along with being a strength coach, which to this day sounds ridiculous, but it is what it is. Um, And I really liked the EP work and I I really liked doing that stuff. And then when I went to work for Zach Brown uh, in 2019 as a human performance coach, I provided as much of that other side of my experience um, as possible during the concerts, you know, so I kind of double dipped there as well. So that kind of, that all was kind of moving in a direction. And I realized I really enjoyed that world, the, the camaraderie and the teamwork and the not being so isolated and, and and working on a project. And so COVID hits and let's just call it the COVID pause because nothing really happened during that time. But coming out of COVID, uh, my fiance and I were now up here in Montana and In Northern Montana, they have this, a couple organizations that are really clever, but one was called the Sheriff's Posse. That makes Sheriff's Posse. I wonder what that is, right? And I was Googling it. And so what it is, is it's a volunteer organization of men and women that help support the staff of the Flathead County Sheriff's Office. And the goal in which is just to help in for the most part, situations where in which we can get deputies back on the road, and we can handle the scene security, traffic, um, things of which that have a high level of importance, but they can't be dealt with. Well, simultaneously, we have mass casualties or car accidents or other stuff happening. We just, we don't have enough bodies. So we would step in and kind of help with those things. So I get online. I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. I should find out more information. Eh, Much like everything else in my life, I'm about to force myself into something. So I fill out what I thought was a request for information. I was filling out A kind of weirdly designed application, (laughs) 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 mislabeled application. (laughs) Yeah, so I really didn't know what it was. I "Ah, fill it all out, send it off. Didn't think much of it. I get this email back, and it's like, "Hey, your interview time has been slotted for, and your background check will be done this time." And I, so, so I say to Megan, "I'm like, Jesus, I don't know what this is, but I think I just applied. I don't think I asked for information." And she goes you've talked about law enforcement as long as we've been together, just go and see what it is, you know? And I'm like, all right. So I roll up and it's like, (laughs) I should have been more prepared. So I roll into the office and it is like the, the liaison for the sheriff's department, uh, deputy Pasola, who oversees the whole program, he's doing the background check. He's sitting right there, a whole table of law enforcement personnel. And it is like, uh, 30 minute oral interview. And I was like, Holy crap. So I do it. I, I do fine. I pass, you know, everything's good. And then, uh, you know, so I started getting involved with the posse and it's, it's a, just peer pol- volunteer organization, like presence at fairs presence at, uh, situations of that nature. And about a month or two in, uh, a, a representative former FBI guys like, uh, anyone interested in the reserve academy? I'm like, well, what's this? So I asked Charles, the deputy, I'm like, what's the reserve academy? He's like, oh, you should consider it. Uh, I'm like, well, what is it? And he's like, ah, oh, you have to go back to school for six months, but you'll come out as a sworn uh, sheriff's office deputy. I'm like, oh. And I'm like, it's still a volunteer organization. He's like, yeah, he goes, it is, but it's a lot more intensive. There's going to be a lot more uh, responsibility if you want it and a lot more opportunity, as they say, to do cool stuff, right? So I'm like, oh, okay. So I went back to school. Um, it was like two months after filling out my accidental uh request for information. I'm sitting in, you know, the Flathead County Sheriff's Office Reserve Academy, um, being taught by the deputies and the uh attorney, uh local attorneys and university professors. And so that went on for, you know, that was six months of college education followed by FTOs, which for me was a wild experience. I learned a lot right away on FTOs, um, and then additional training by the Flathead County Sheriff's Office. And so that like it was like drinking through a fire hose for sure, and it just kind of shot me into this another world of experiences, and and I realized right away. Uh, especially on FTOs. Uh, Our initial FTOs were 88 hours of, of second guy in the car with the sheriff's department. And it was whatever call came in, it's their day, right? So you're about to get, um, you're about to get exposed potentially and very aggressively to the world that exists behind the matrix, right? And that's the part that, how would I say this? So when I, when I talked about the hero's journey and whether or not I felt or worried or was concerned about whether or not I would be able to respond accordingly to scenarios in which you don't expect to respond to, it was on day four of my FTOs. And as you know full well and everybody listening, this you know, this is the, the world. The first six hours were quiet, right? Like, you know, we're driving up into beautiful Northern Montana and checking on an alarm. We're doing a little bit of a break and entry report at this other place. Everything's just, it's it's not busy, but it's not, you're not sitting around in Northern Montana because there's too many people, not enough of us, right? But, eh, you know, no big deal. And I, and I'm like, oh, okay. And then my first, you know, three rides prior, we were doing a lot of flood warning stuff. So it was like really quiet first three days. I, it just, it was experience, but it was an experience, you know? And, uh, and I remember like halfway, like halfway through day four. And I remember like, ah, oh, motorcycle crash. And I'm like, oh, a motorcycle crash. I remember that's all I'm thinking in my head. And from sitting on the side of the road, talking about stuff like this, like just bullshitting, To, oh my God, I'm doing CPR on a guy with a head trauma, was literally six minutes apart. And I'm like, and I remember at some point, like halfway through, like chest compressions and real time with real people, with his wife that's having the worst day of her life. He's having the worst day of his life. There's chaos everywhere. And I remember halfway through it being very, okay and not only feeling very okay, but it felt like the first time in a long time, maybe the first time since sport that I felt like I was exactly where I was meant to be at that moment in time. and it felt very peaceful. Now the thought of it afterwards and thinking through what because that that day just went from that to shit show after that like I you know I won't even talk about it but shit show. And I remember getting home. Well, let me put it this way. I go from doing CPR on this guy that's having a terrible day, feeling very like in the zone, comfortable and calm to horrific chaos after that with another situation that was just mind boggling to like one in the morning, standing at an elementary school that had an alarm go off on a perfect like Montana summer night, stars are out like flashlighting doorways, shooting the shit with the guys I'd kind of been in and out with all day that day. And then just being like, huh, so this is what you guys do for a living. And I remember being like, okay, some of this stuff I'm going to need some time to process. And and even to this day, I I make no lie about it. Some of the stuff that ended up happening that day, I'm like, wow, that was heavy, but I'm okay with it because I still felt like that's exactly where I was meant to be at that exact moment for that exact reason. And as stressful as it was, it's the first time in a long time. And not that coaching isn't what I love to do, but there sure felt like there was a strong purpose to that moment, you know, and it, it really felt purposeful. Like that day that day was important and that day and some other days that have come since had the same, like, okay, this is, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be right now. And afterwards I remember telling my brother and, and Megan, of, of course, cause we live together, but I told my brother afterwards, I'm like, I was really relieved at how I responded to that moment. And I, I remember just feeling like, okay, Okay. I'm okay with that. And I, and I, but the relief, the relief of knowing that I had been trained properly and I responded accordingly, man, I I don't know if it's any less significant one day of work, by the way, for people that are listening at home, one day of work had the same emotional significance to purpose as competing at a Canadian national championships that I won because I was like, this, this mattered. this, this was really important. And I don't know the people that I was helping that day. I'll, I'll don't know. It doesn't matter, but I'm just glad that I was there. You know, I'm glad it was our, our truck that got the call for that one. You know? Yeah. It's uh it was an eye opener and it made me realize that I don't know where the road for first responding goes from here for me. Um, I've considered heavily considered the, like doing it full time, like literally like just, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do, but I know what that entails. So I have to give it some thought, but the, the opportunities have come up recently. Um, but I can't see myself ever not wanting to be involved with at the very minimum the sheriff's department as a reserve. Like, I just, I can't, I can't see myself not being involved. You know, it, it's, uh, I think it's important. And I, and regardless of what organizations people are getting involved with, even if it's at the volunteer level, if you're wondering, I know people always say this, but if you're wondering, just go find out because you may find that they needed you and you needed them you know and i think i think it is something that we definitely need a lot of right now especially in this country
0: there's a yeah. great mentorship program in my town started by my friend chris and, my, and it's a firefighter mentorship program and it's a, it's an amazing way to kind of remove the true barriers to entry for some people when it talk, when it comes to coming into our profession and my bonus boy my stepson went for a few weeks and it made him realize that he didn't want to do that. And he didn't obviously go on calls and respond, but just, and then that's equally valuable. So you become a, you know, a reserve deputy or part of the posse. And then you go, yeah, no, okay, beautiful. Then maybe mentoring sports teams or working in that soup kitchen might be the right fit. But I think just taking that step forward to being a proactive member of your community not your workplace that gives you money in your account but actually where you live and you know because some people this job isn't for everyone it's not for a lot of people but there are the right fit for everyone i would be an awful accountant i know i would you know Same. so <laughs> yeah. so you Same. know so try i say try it and if if it's not the right fit be proud that you tried you can check it off your list and go find the the area in your community that you would be an
1: asset and and we see that now especially as the reserve academy gets more uh not streamlined but over time everything gets better right so we even saw that this year with uh the graduating class from the reserve academy because you know those of us that went through we went back to help with the role playing and the scenario training that is kind of the accumulation of their education at the end of the year um and I mean, it doesn't really give anything away, but, you know, they they forcibly and very realistically incorporate shoot, no shoot and high stress situations with that job, obviously. Um, And that is an extremely important aspect of the job, because what we found right away is that does really clarify whether or not, you know, and that is a really important question to ask, Um, you know, because. It, you know, if you don't want to go through, for example, with us, with, with the, the sheriff's department, if you don't want to go all the way through to reserve uh, or eventually become a full-time deputy or a police officer locally, whatever they decide, you know, there there is a point where in which you can take a pause and that's our sheriff's posse, right? So you can be a part of the organization which is volunteer-based. You know, uh, is there an outside chance you're going to have to you know, tackle a drunk at the local fair because they're in a fist fight? Yeah, maybe, right? But the uh, the extreme cases are the, um, the unfortunate reality that there's evil people on this planet, no, you should never have to deal with those. But you will be the person that the, you know, four or five-year-old girl at the county fair who's lost in, you know, in jeopardy because they can't find their parents. You're going to be there for them though. And that's important too. So, that that is the nice thing about the the fact that we do have, even though it's a collective organization currently, they're having those options, right? Like, and and what you say is extremely accurate. There are some people that are really good at volunteer work, but maybe the full monty is not exactly what they should be doing and it for for a million reasons i mean you know it's not just cuz they don't want to drive fast in a car and shoot guns right like you know that's that's cool too but uh, there's levels and levels and levels to the psychological side of it that you have to be okay with you know
0: so i've always said that the profession that i adore working as a firefighter and a paramedic um is so invaluable. However, it's completely reactive. That worst day has already happened. And they're like, what the hell? You know, it's not something that law enforcement can do. So basically, we're everything else. So they send us and we show up and we try and figure out how to unfuck their day, basically. But then on the coaching side, and I've coached for quite a few years now, very, very part time, you know, white, white belt level coach. But I always saw that as the other side of the scale, like the morbidly obese cardiac arrest it's too late for that man or woman but when i'm coaching can i sow a seed that maybe will stop or at least prolong the time for that person to ever end in the back so you come into law enforcement with this strength and conditioning lens talk to me about that the perception of the the uh, ability of the tactical athletes that you've worked with in uniform and where we could do better if there if at all
1: so I, I, the one thing I will say is <laughs> blasphemy, thank God CrossFit did show up at some point along the way, because, you know, cause I know it's like, you know, I, like, I fully admit that I was one of those guys that was like CrossFit. Isn't that just exercise? Right. You know what I mean? Cause like for us that came from a very hard training background, we're like, oh, it's, it's a brand name of exercising. All right. That's cool. But thank God they came along because what it did do is get some people out of the, uh, even though I loved it myself, like bench press bicep curl mentality. Right. Um, it did get people moving again, moving uh, very athletically again and moving in, uh, in a way in which is probably going to be more applicable to real life. So thank God for that. Okay. On some level, whatever by sorenx. Right. <laughs> but anyway, the point being, is like, uh, when I look at it, what I found, and I'm talking like like day two in the car with like a 25-pound vest on, I'm like, holy shit, we got a problem. Like, it, you know, and I had good dudes that I was riding with that I've become friends with since, and, I, and one of which, you know, perfect example, strong dude, just a hard charger, former military guy, goes out to a tactical event and Uh, tears a calf, uh, doing a, a a shoot and run deal. Right. And in this is in training, like, and not like private sector stuff. This is like actual, like curriculum training for, for the job. And I'm just like, Oh shit. We are not unwinding the system at all from the stresses we're putting on it. Um, Like anybody, anybody can sit in a car 10 hours. Well, I would even argue best job for a power lifter is a guy that sits in a car 10 hours a day, right? (laughs) It doesn't get any better than that. You got your food next to you, your water, and you're sitting, right? You'll get strong shit, but don't ask that person to do that, then go chase or run or intervene because they're in physical jeopardy. So it's made me kind of be like, oh, okay, we need to roll this back. And like, how can I take my understanding of of strength and conditioning and you know prehab rehab and and game plan it a little bit to help athletes and a buddy of mine with a uh, California Highway Patrol he's been in the game a long time Tyson we were talking about this recently and it's like you know yes being strong is really important but we have to start balancing the health of our of our officers and our first responders of all categories because there's too much classic functional injury that's developing 10 times worse than that of somebody sitting at a desk and forward flexion all day. And it's like, not only are we keeping them cramped up and shortened all the the issues that we know that come with anterior flexion issues and back pain and all this stuff. And then you throw on the weight. Okay. Then on top of it, they're probably not eating great. They're probably not drinking enough water because they don't want to be stopping to take a leak every 30 minutes because that starts to mess up A, their routine and or they can't because they're on a call. On top of that, you throw on a bunch of equipment that doesn't fit their body, right? Doesn't fit the car, right? And it's like, oh, so you got all these variables working against you. All right, let's get into the literally fight of your life on the drop of a hat and see how that goes, right? And we're seeing injuries and all of them are related to the fact that most of the guys Unless they're extremely proactive, extremely proactive, um, are not doing what they need to unwind the car. And that's kind of where I'm starting to realize what it is. It's like the car is binding them up and shutting them down physically. And they either don't have the time. It's hard to find the time or they don't have the balance to unwind them when they get out of that car, right? Like we're good here in the sense that we have a four and four schedule which is not a perfect four and four, Um, you know, so it's four twelves and then four four days off. But it's like, okay, how do you convince somebody that, you know, just finished four days or four nights uh, that, okay, for the next four days before you go back on night shift, your priority is physical activity, right? You're going to spend the next four days training your Ass off at least an hour and a half a day to unwind your system so that even if you can't train on your four nights worth of shit, it's going to be your restoration days for your next four hard days of program preparatory work. So there's like a whole psychological shift that's going to come with that. But it's a lot like coming off of a a really bad or catastrophic injury. The first two months will be the worst. If we can get them through the transitionary 60 days, they'll probably be okay. They'll either develop enough uh, fitness to recover fast enough um, that they'll be okay. And or the routine will now become something that they can perceive as making them feel better, that they'll be able to stick with it. But it's it's a complicated question. And it's one that I started working on is like literally day two. Like day two in the car and how I felt, I was like, okay, you got to train different. Being strong isn't necessarily the the solution to this problem. Um, Perfect example. Uh, We had under the big sky out here this past weekend, which is a monster concert schedule. And so I was like, let's call it stage left. And all I had to do was like a, a micro patrol of an area. So basically, you know, reader's digest version, I stood for six hours in one spot, right? Police presence, try to keep people from getting into fights or being assholes, uh, you know, just very basic stuff and sure as shit, it's like, I get there at four o'clock, start standing at five and at 1159, two guys have a fight, right? Like, like could have you not had a fight in the first hour when we're all loose? Like like, (laughs) I've just finished (laughs) stretching. (laughs) Yeah. I just finished stretching. Like I I literally, you know, at the most dehydrated, miserable physical point of the night is when they decide that, and that's life, that's Murphy's law. And I remember like, uh, I was coming in from a different angle. There was already four guys there. So it's not like it was a super emergency, but I had to hop a fence. And I remember throwing my first leg up on the fence and being like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> like it sounded like like popping bubbles inside my body as I went over that fence, and I'm like, "That's it. That the, like, that is the fundamental flaw of what we're dealing with: is stagnation followed by extreme mobility, dynamic action. And unless you are a cat and you're continuously have a cat routine of stretching out all the the killing muscles." you're in trouble right because your response is going to be dictated by your physical preparedness and and your physical preparedness just like the olympics rarely is your best day like everyone's like oh i won the olympics with my very best ever mm, statistically most people win the olympics with their like second best ever right so world class competition is a byproduct of your best average not your best day typically not your worst day either unless you you shit the bed but most people it is your best average that's policing what is your best average what are you like 90% of the time when you open the door like when you throw the the door open on the truck to go on a call how you f- like if you feel miserable like that's kind of what's going to be happening the majority of the time right rarely do you throw that door open and be like oh yeah, this is a a 100 meter gold medal performance coming out of this truck, right? It's not gonna happen. You're gonna come out and be like, oh, like this this is gonna take a second, right? But we don't have a second. So how do you bring up your average best time, right? And make sure that your average is pretty good. And and that's the focus that a lot of people kind of get lost on. You know, even if you're a power lifter that does the job, I mean, even then, right? No, nah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Those guys are going to get beat up every time they get up. Not physically beat up, but like it's hard on the body. Like it's just, you, you don't get that first step acceleration.
0: <laughs> well, you talked about the four on four off. One of the the most profound things Jeff Nichols told me years ago now um, was when and this, I, I did this because I did cross it for a long long time since about uh, 05, ish, I forget exactly, but yep. you know long enough to kind of see the undulation of of the highs and lows. But I would get off shift and I'd have this mentality of I'm gonna go fucking crush it in the gym, you know I'm gonna sweat out my stress, and then you know when you actually look at the nervous system all right, got off shift, haven't slept, I am so insympathetic right now. So by doing Murph, that's going to make me deregulate. No. And then it took me so long to realize this. And I'm like, when Jeff told me, I'm like, I am such an idiot. And then ever since then, I've kind of done the opposite. So when you were talking about those four days, they don't even really have four days to do it because that first day they need to be doing a much lower intensity workout to then ramp up to maybe those
1: following three. 100%. It almost becomes like the reverse of a like linear periodization where we have like, you know, high, medium, low, or whatever you want to think, where you're kind of relying on central nervous system readiness to be able to get your hard training with an athlete. And that's, that's kind of how like traditional periodization, you always look at it. Like, you know, so that's why like a lot of athletes will be Olympic lifting on Monday, right. Or whatever, you know, or heavy squat workout will be on that Monday because yeah, central nervous system's good. And you just try to hang on to it for the rest of the week. If the programming sound. This is the reverse. You have to have parasympathetic restoration into sympathetic uh, central nervous system activation going back into shift. Like you want to increase readiness into the job each week, not kind of decrease. And and it's tough because, so this will probably make sense to you. I used to refer to it as like exercise whiskey or exercise moonshine, meaning which? With people, and it doesn't just have to be first responders, but it really seems to show up heavily in this world, but we used to see it with like CEOs and board members that weren't, uh, they weren't self-medicating other ways for what, however people want to take that, they can take it, but their shot of whiskey was doing the hardest, worst workouts they could possibly do every day after work because that was their self-medication that was like self deprivation. You know, it's like, I'm just going to go in and I'm going to lose myself in this horrific experience of a workout. I'm going to undo all my trauma with this back squat, like gauntlet, like, right? You know, just go in and smash themselves into the ground and they would all have high cortisol level body fat. They would all have oh, shit. I suffer. I did this to myself. So I've drank the exercise whiskey many a time. Um, But I would go solve my bad days with a hard workout. I would go have, because I wasn't a drinker, my hard drink of choice was destroying myself physically because I felt like if I could distract my mind from the realities of my day through the physical distraction of discomfort, then I'm healing myself as a person. Right. (laughs) Like it's, but that's what we have a tendency to do. Right. Because we replace one agony for another. And as long as it's not the agony or the devil I know, then I'm okay. And it it takes a long time or intervention by somebody of, of someone that you may respect or you can, like at Jeff Nichols, like I know Jeff well. And it's like, Jeff Nichols rolls into me and he's like, dude, what are you doing? I'll be like, oh, yeah. Okay. This guy's walked the road 10,000 miles ahead of me. And we're both human performance coaches. If Jeff's telling me, that I need to take some, like <laughs> you know, take some memoractive and do some other stuff and meditate on Mondays because I just got off shift Monday morning. Yep, I should probably start listening to Jeff, right? <laughs> like <laughs> let's let's call it what it is, right? But it's, sometimes it's hard, you know. In CrossFit, not to shit on good old CrossFit, but they don't know, right? Uh, unless one of their guys knows or is from your world they're going to break you off because that's what CrossFit does. It breaks you off and, and it creates community through camaraderie through stress and through hardship, right? It's boot camp every day that you go for the rest of your life, unless the coach is really proactive. Um, So I get it, you know, by no means do I, do I say that that isn't beneficial for a lot of people because let's be honest, there's a lot of people need to get broken off, right? They, they need, their life is a little too much to the other way, right? So when they roll out of, you know, programming AI to copy everything I say, they got to go do something very <laughs> physical, <laughs> right? So, so I get it. But for the other side, man, who would have guessed, right? I wouldn't have for years. I wouldn't have thought less is more or maybe even not less, but methodical is more right. Being able to unwind. And, and maybe it wasn't until I became a, a soft tissue therapist at one point in my life that I realized that the central nervous system gets stored in our tissue. Right. And that was a, that was a big eye opener for me. Um, you know, Charlie Francis, the great, he since left, you know, this realm, but the great uh, Canadian track and field coach, He used to talk about like being able to tell the readiness of an athlete by the tonicity or texture of their muscle, right? He could tell when Ben Johnson was going to run fast by how his muscle felt or how he looked. It's no different for first responders. You're going to carry the stress of the job in the tissue of your body because your subconscious neurological system doesn't distinguish. It's like, We need to keep this engine revving because if we need to go, we need to go. And if I shut this engine off and it cools down too much, we're in trouble, right? So you have to intervene and learn when to take the keys out of that ignition and when to put the keys back in again. And that is, uh, not everybody gets it, right? I, I just don't think everybody gets it. Well, you said less is more. Um,
0: one thing that I've talked about a lot on here is the impact of sleep deprivation on everything, mental health, you know, the uh, likelihood of injury, hormonal disruption, et cetera, et cetera. You have an interesting lens now. You work with high level athletes that earn millions of dollars and you work with people who other people trust with their lives who earn tens. Of thousands of dollars a year. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. So, talk to me about the contrast, the importance, and how you catered for sleep in the sporting athlete. And then, what are you seeing
1: in the first responder profession? So, right off the top, sleep is, in my opinion, the number one detriment to human performance. Like, you can do a lot of things wrong as a strength coach. If Your athletes are getting nine hours of sleep every and their sleep hygiene is good. Um, th- no question about it. it uh, oof. like if criminals would go to bed every night at 11 and get up every morning at seven, we would catch a lot of them, right? <laughs> like, there's, there's no question about it. Um, it, it, it's a funny thing, like, when we were working with athletes, and myself included. The process of creating sleep hygiene, which I think is now more of a buzz term, but like a sleep protocol, sleep system, it can be the difference between, okay, so this is how I used to describe it. Human performance and success happens at the rate of restoration, right? So if you could take two athletes and clone them and give them a four-year Olympic cycle and one athlete... You were able to do everything correct in terms of restoration, performance accelerators, um, uh, rehab therapy, massage, everything, sleep nine hours perfectly every night, get up same time every day. Um, and the other athlete, you let them just have variable lifestyle. The athlete that you're controlling the rate of restoration perfectly is going to far out- exceed far out, far, far out, uh, I'll see the success of the undulating athlete to a degree in which you would think they were on drugs. Why do we know this is true is because that's exactly what performance enhancing drugs do. They shorten the window of restoration between exposure so that the athlete recovers faster so that they can do more, more often and get further ahead. So the law of 10,000, that's exactly it. So that's all like, Yeah, we can get into the really minutiae of anabolics, but let's just get rid of all that. PEDs shorten the window of restoration between exposures so you can train more often and at a higher rate. So you can do your sport more. That's it. You can just do it more and, and do it in a way in which you progress. So without PEDs in a tested world, how do we do that? We control restoration through sleep, sleep protocols, supplement sports nutrition, uh, restoration methods, soft tissue methods. We do all this magic, right in voodoo to speed up that window so that we can get them to train at a higher percentage of their ability more often, right? So now their law of ten thousand, not as not only is it just the law of ten thousand, but we're now doing more repetitions above seventy five percent of threshold ability, right, and recovering from it, right? So we know that athletics in particular, And the exposure to athletics and repeatable athletics, it's not uh, like you can't throw a hundred mile an hour fastball slow and learn how to throw a hundred mile an hour fastball. So you have to be able to replicate sport at the speed of sport, and you have to be able to do so in a manner which is neurologically recognizable so that when you put it onto the field of play, it happens in real time and it looks the same. And To do that, we demand a high threshold, basically execution, right? So we have to do things faster aggressively to be able to do them in a way in which is recognizable in sport. The only way you can do that is making sure that restoration is optimal because if not, they will get injured in training from trying to replicate the speed of sport and or they will get on the field of play and pull the hamstring because they were able to find the gear with adrenaline where in which they were not prepared to go right now we take that over to the first responder world and the fact that a lot of these guys are massively overextended in terms of not just the uh, of of the job right and the long days but because the long days are followed by a lifestyle choice in the restoration phase of the week which it may be out of their control right they get off nights Right. And the camper and the kids are already loaded for the weekend, right? Because they promised four days at the lake. But is it really four days of rest? I would argue it's hit or miss on the family, right? <laughs> like, so it could be four days of horrific stress because what they really need is a cold, dark room for a few hours with no lights on and no stimulation right? But they don't get it. So now the, the, the window of restoration has yet to begin, right? They're not doing the job, but they're doing the job, right? Because they have their family and the stress or, or maybe they went straight into that to like thing that people don't realize possibly a second job, right? So they get off shift at, at, at 6am in the morning and they don't, on that first day off, they don't go home and go to sleep, Right, they don't go and get in their dark room with their eye mask on and their magnesium drink or their magnesium bicarbonate. They, they don't. They don't do that. Why? Because you know they went and poured concrete for the next seven hours because they have a side contracting gig job, right? Or they're roofing houses, which is a whole nother conversation. The fact that we have first responders doing. Like good secondary work as contractors on their days off, often without sleep, just to go back to work in the in the car or in the rig, because they have to make the income. Right. It's a it just is it's reality, right? They're not getting paid enough for the city they live in and for the cost of the living. I mean, the the house that I'm fortunate to live in right now, our taxes house 29% in one year is what they're going to hit us for increased taxes on our house. Why? Because all of a sudden it's cool to live in Northern Montana because of a TV show and some assholes that don't have to do a real job. (laughs) Right. Right? But that's, that's, that's what we're dealing with. That's, and that's happening in a lot of places that increase the cost of living is not reflective in the salary of a lot of these men and women. Yeah. So you take all of this and you jam it together. And then you're like, oh, by the way, for the next month, you work only nights. So, okay. So there's the psychological separation from society, right? So that's a part of it. No one wants to talk about, but now all of a sudden you're living on a routine where in which no one your friends or family with are doing right. So now you're the guy that's like, not going to be around literally for a month. Right. People don't realize that, like, you know, unless you have a really understanding partner or they get it, but they're going to be getting up to go to work, possibly right when you get home or very shortly after. So you might get an hour or two in the morning. They're going to work until you're leaving and there's a there may not be overlap. Right. So you may head out to work before they get home. So it's like, I'm going to see this person now six months of the year instead of every day, right? Like in the big scheme of things. So there's that huge psychological component or hurdle. So what happens? You know, you start to miss each other. So you start to stay up longer or say it's their days off and you're on, you neglect sleep for life because you want to spend time with your significant other and family. So now all of a sudden you're only sleeping three hours on a Sunday afternoon before you start your shift at 6 p.m. Because you stayed up all morning to be with your family. Restoration goes out the window again. And so like, when you start to look at this, you really are getting into a situation where the people doing the most important job in the world. And I, it's not that I shit on athletes cause I love athletes, but they're like the ruling class, right? They're the, they're the Kings and Queens and get to live a Kings and Queens lifestyle. Whereas those that are burning the candle at both ends are expected to operate and to excel at a level equivalent to or greater than the responsibility of those Kings and Queens without the care and nurture of a thousand people picking up the pieces every single day, you know? And and that's, that to me is the fundamental disconnect, right? It's like the mistakes that we've seen happen in different areas Of first responding regardless of what it is from paperwork to catastrophic mistakes give me the breakdown give me the last six months of that person's life show me what happened you know we have a say we have a deputy hypothetically drives his car off the road um randomly or uh accidentally runs a red light and T-bones somebody. And everyone's like, "Oh, that guy's a professional. That should have never happened. That's garbage, you know. He should have his license taken away. I can't believe he crashed a police car." Okay. That's also his like 60 hour 60th hour of work in the last 4 days. <laughs> he has to have a work phone that he responds to while well, simultaneously a laptop That he has to communicate with while driving that car and potentially also being just given information that is like holy shit information. And it's like, oh, did we mention he only slept three hours yesterday? Because after 12 hours of nights, he had to go to court and he had to sit there for four or five hours for a 30 minute conversation. So, yeah, he slept three hours yesterday and all of it was mandatory, right? i like but yet no one ever sees the actions only the uncoupling right so it's like what what led to the the steam pot boiling all we heard was the whistle we never saw the water boil right and and that's typically the society we live in you know and that's why i also think even if you never want to get into law enforcement if you got an opinion do a ride along as a civilian think about what you went through that day and then apply it to 25 years of career. Right. And be like, okay. So every day that you were in the office bullshitting and, and doing whatever that person you rode with is doing exactly what you rode with every day. You're not there. So like that's, you don't even have to be a volunteer. You don't even have to get out of the car when shit hits the fan sign up for a ride along as a civilian and just, five hours and just kind of get an idea of what we're demanding of these people the next time you don't vote to increase county wages yeah yeah well thank you for that
0: perspective i mean you know obviously what we learned about your journey is invaluable and i think you know the you underline the very thing i've talked about a lot you know these officer involved shootings that are the gray area ones not the black and white either way You know, no one ever talks about how how long has that officer been awake? What kind of training did they have? You know, all these things that come into it that are organizational as well. Yes, the ownership of, of the individual is part of the conversation, but not whole. Another thing I've also heard in the fire service for a long time, being someone who kept myself in the shape that I needed to be to function as a firefighter, sometimes despite the environment, is, oh, it's always the fit guys that get hurt. Well, yes, because of what we just discussed. you Your rest and recovery is where you grow, where you process things that you learned the day before, where you improve. You take one out of three sleeps of a 10, 20, 30-year career. It's not if, it's when. And as I sit here, like I said, back injury and bilateral meniscus from someone who understood movement and actually was able to at least, at least get ahead of it enough to not completely fuck myself up and not completely lose, you know, lose body composition. But the other, you know, the middle whatever percent didn't have the luxury of being raised on an english farm and and find themselves in the strength of conditioning early in their life you know so these are you know this this sleep conversation people have to be awake at night but we've got to understand that we've got to give these men and women in uniform the rest and recovery between shifts so that as you said when we go back You've rested, you've been able to exercise ramp yourself back up to be as close to game ready again the next time you get yeah. on that vehicle
1: one hundred percent like when I see these uh so you know you'll see somewhere they maybe are in a a division that runs a shorter daily hour you know so maybe it's not twelves or whatever, but maybe it's uh tens and they're doing five and twos the everyone that I have met. And it doesn't matter if they're law enforcement or, you know, uh, night shift, wherever. Five and twos is not sustainable. And a lot of people demand it. A lot of these areas do. They're like, oh, yeah, we'll just work five and twos on a a rotating shift where maybe we go mornings, swings, and nights. Um, But you're going to do a month of nights at some point, three times a year, four times a year, but it's five and twos, destroys them. Because two days is not enough time to recover from five nights. It just isn't enough. Like that's why I'm a big fan. Like the four and fours for me is like, that makes sense. That just makes sense. That should be the the minimum. Like you could go a four and three, but if you do, you gotta you gotta dramatically shorten the nights.
0: Well, even I mean, you think about four, that's 48, four eight, four twelves. So that goes back to the question that I always ask too. Why is the police officer who's going to drive lights and sirens through traffic opposing past your family going intersections your family's crossing to then, you know, pull over your teenage son who's then going to reach in the glove box and grab their license, but they think they're going for a gun? You know what I mean? Why, why is it okay that that person we work 48 plus hours a week, but Steve in the bank taps out at 40? It just it doesn't 40. make any – so this uh, – oh, yeah, with the, with the fire service, it's 56. Oh, what if we, you know, what if we did 4896 or what if we went in at 7 p.m. instead of 7, 7 a.m.? The question is why the fuck are we working 56 hours a week when we're the ones saving lives and everyone else is hours a week? Oh, you know, t- I'm, I'm done. You're right. You should be. And the corporate world is going to like 32, realizing that you can yes. actually get the same amount of work done in four days but the first responder yep. professions are like yeah we don't want to hear that you know or we don't have enough money without even addressing the fact that they are bleeding money from the negative bleeding. impact of destroying your workforce
1: 100% like uh like i can't even fathom how much happier these dudes would be if the investment was made so there was uh, more deputies, you know, that would be... So the investment has to be made also to entice the job, right? So there has to be a financial incentive for somebody to make the shift, right? Be like, oh, okay, I can make X number of dollars doing this. I take a huge pay cut, but I really love being a cop. Ah, fuck it. I can't justify the pay cut, right? Like that's what we're dealing with, especially in Montana. You see that. So, Okay. But if I was to go in right now and tell these guys, all right, we're still going to be on fours and fours, but instead of six to six, how about this? You guys can work six to four. Holy shit. Like sign me up. Cause now all of a sudden, cause the way it's the sheriff's department here is pretty sweet. Your truck's your house, right? So you start and stop your day at your front door, right? So you get to drive home. So all of a sudden a guy like, starts his shift at 6 p.m. from his front door and is potentially in bed by 4 30 a.m. on a day where there hasn't been chaos he almost has a normal life again almost it's not great but almost you know um or hypothetically you know you should never do math in public, but it's like, if you put a guy on a schedule where his day started at four and ended at 2 a.m., like a swing, no problem. That guy's in bed every night by 3 a.m., right? Up by 10 a.m., 10.30 a.m. in the morning and has a day life, right? But where is that, what does that come back to? Incentivizing people financially to get into the job so that the numbers can dictate the schedule. Right. And I, I I'll tell you what, like I am absolutely not, but I am a conspiracy theorist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like if I didn't know better, I would think that there was a huge entity at work trying to prevent people from wanting to go into this line of work. Right. Because it's nothing about that side of it to me makes sense coming from coaching or coming from sport or coming from whatever, where I'm just like how is there this many people that potentially could do the job the athletes i knew that have not even thought of it one time and then you realize cuz there's zero incentive for them to even look down that road it's just zero you know um it, it's funny uh, i'd mention this when we're talking like one of my athletes who became a friend after he got out of the professional fighting world has become a fireman in las vegas and it's like oh that makes perfect sense. Of course you did that. But at the same time, it's like, we need about a hundred more of you. You know, you go, go get your friends because that, that's what we need, you know, but it, it's the incentive. Incentive is, uh, well, the incentive and then the de evolution of physical culture, you know, is also an issue now too. Like there's probably, I've met guys that really want to do the gig, but for whatever reason, somewhere from the age of 13 to 28 or whatever I meet them at, you're like, oh, the wheels came off. Yeah, we need to, you need to become physical, then consider doing the job because you you can't do the job. You're not, it sucks to say, but you have a physical disability and it is obesity and lack of of movement, you know? And so you meet that now too, which I think is becoming more prevalent
0: well i think it it requires us in uniform to have a united voice the way i look at the the first responder community for example in the fire service everyone looks to the iaff and i've talked about this you know many many times there are some good union members you know scattered around but as an entity 2023 fire service still working 56 hours a week epic fucking failure and so, it, to me, it's the same as expecting Donald Trump or Joe Biden to fix your country. Like, what the fuck f- are you doing? We're the base. There's millions of us at the bottom. you got one tool bag and a tie at the top, and you're expecting them to fix everything? It's us. So, until we advocate for our own profession and demand higher standards and demand better training and you know, get out there and mentor and get young people excited about our profession then you're just sitting in your lazy boy eating your Cheetos bitching about how everything's wrong. So until, like you said, that volunteerism even comes from us wearing a uniform. Volunteer yes. your time to advocate for your profession.
1: Yeah. It, I know it's an an old adage, but change comes from within. It always has. It doesn't matter if it's the individual person or an organization or a team. Uh, you know, Romeo Cornell was an amazing coach in Cleveland, but couldn't get him to win right? Like he just, but yet he goes somewhere else. The team wins. It's a culture within, right? It's the individual mindset towards the the task at hand. And, you know, it's uh, some of it's subtle stuff, right? Like uh, a police department without a weight room makes no sense to me, right? Little, like just little stuff. And I'm not talking like, you know, 3000 square feet of you know epic gear i'm talking 600 square feet of space right like there shouldn't be there shouldn't be a lack of opportunity for for the individual like if google if google's going to make their offices so enjoyable to be in that some people never actually really leave them from the food that's provided to the hammocks to the weight rooms to the recreation but yet our most important houses of industry in this country don't even have some of the basic necessities. Like, Oh, you got 12 guys on staff, but you got one bathroom. You know what I mean? Like it really does have to have, there has to be a fundamental change. And, but we saw it in Canada as well. Like, you know, cause I, at the end of the day, I can think back to where I grew up. It's, you know, Canada is supposed to be this super progressive, liberally driven, like Scandinavia want to be. And they treat our first responders like shit. Not only do they treat them like shit, they barely pay them. Right. Which makes no sense in a country that small with that many resources. And you can't, don't even get, you know, into the conversation of how we treated our men and women that came home from, from war because we realized, oh my God, Canada has socialized medicine, but doesn't have a VA. That's awesome. How could that happen? because they don't care, right? Disposable people for a disposable cause and you get a disposable outcome, right? So it's uh it, it becomes it becomes this massive problem and and it's and it is disappointing because like I go back, when I was on that day, it was exactly where I was meant to be, and not just psychologically there was something else about that moment that made my life feel like it had purpose. Right. And so the job is important. It's really important. And the fact that it isn't as important into the eyes of those that could actually make the financial changes is it's, it's a little bit frightening.
0: It really is. Well there's there's two more things I want to hit before I let you go. I know we've, yeah. we've been going almost 3 hours now, but uh, it's an amazing conversation. And then we'll obviously talk about Bitcoin Bitcoin mining to round it up. But uh <laughs> firstly, bringing solutions to problems. The person listening today, regardless of the structure they work in, the you know, the the culture in their department, they can own some some certain areas. So the first one I want to talk about is supplementation. It was Tom that connected us from Thorne originally. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been sure. a huge advocate of Thorne. I take it myself. My whole family does. Um, they've been a sponsor on the show because I pursued them as a sponsor. So talk nice. to me about supplementation and you know the, some of the things that you advocate, whether it's athletes or even specific to tactical athletes.
1: Yeah, so I think both worlds fall into the same category of necessity. And that's honestly it's depletion. So even if you have an athlete or a first responder that really takes care of the nutritional side, I mean, Ronnie Coleman was a cop, right? So if anybody can, can, there is no reason not to be lean and jacked in the job If Mr. Olympia can actually do both for a period of time, right? So, but the problem is, is it takes a ton of preparation um, in terms of getting your nutrition and diet and being willing to make some sacrifices. Like, God forbid you bring chicken and rice to work instead of stopping for a hot dog, right? But with that being said, some of the demands of the the world is a massive depletion on our systems, right? A lot of people think that the RDA is enough, and it's not. It just simply isn't enough, especially with things like magnesium that is involved with hundreds of molecular processes in the body. And the one thing that we found with the polyquin world is we could dramatically increase restoration with our athletes, dramatically increase restoration with anybody by ramping up sleep protocol. So it doesn't matter if you're going to sleep at 10 a.m. and getting up at 5 p.m. or vice versa, uh, going to bed at 10 at night, getting up at 5 a.m. If that's what you're dealing with and you can dramatically increase like magnesium concentration in the tissue as well as the brain, that's a big one. Uh, bringing down the central nervous system, stimulating, uh, basically driving forces and forcing parasympathetic state through supplementation, like GABA, for example, is going to be a big one. Uh, Theanine is going to be another one, along with magnesium, in particular magnesium by glycinate. You can start to cool the, the systems of the body in a way in which you can force reset, right? It's not perfect, but it does work. And hypothetically, it goes the other way as well. Um, I don't know if you saw me, but I took a, a pouch out. So I, I've been using these pouches that have amino acids in them and uh, experimentation, right? But it's like tyrosine and alpha GPC and some of these other things. You can force up regulation of stimulation. We started playing with that with Charles in uh, the special operations community. We started incorporating these like like supplemental protocols that they would take. And uh, Charles began playing with it with Secret Service guys that he knew, where they, you know, worst job in the world, right? Stand around for 15 hours and just like, I knew a guy, hypothet- okay, hypothetically, I knew a guy that uh, his job was to sit outside of the bedroom of the uh, president and the first lady. Um, not in a weird way, but in a security way, Uh, (laughs) not in a fantasy way, (laughs) not in a fantasy way. Right. And he he said, the funny thing about that job was, is he knew exactly how many tiles were in the floor in the area in which he worked. Right. Because that's how monotonous the job was until it's not monotonous. Right. And so we started uh, helping those guys with things like, uh, Neuroregulators or nootropic upregulation, right? So that's a big part of it. The other big part of it is, is learning that we don't often require f- as much food as we think we do in certain times of stress, but the stress that we're feeling is making us desire food that we probably shouldn't eat. Um, so learning to supplement that with like making that decision i got my whey protein with me in the car i'm i'm like i know this i know what i'm feeling is not hunger it's stress so the first two you know qualities are to qualify the sensation is make sure to you're hydrated right so you take your hydration protocol, you take some electrolytes or you take catalyte, right? And you make sure you have a good electrolyte in there. And you're like, oh, I'm not hungry anymore. All right. It's dehydration. It's playing with your brain. Okay. The second thing you feel is like, wow, that was extremely emotionally stressful. I need to eat a hot dog. (laughs) Like like it's crazy as it sounds, but it's comfort food. Why? Because hot dogs made you feel good when you were sad when you were a kid, right? So you're like, okay, you know what? It's not real. I'm going to, eat this like jerky, or I'm going to drink whey protein shake or whatever it is. And all lo and behold, I got enough of the necessary nootropics I needed to satiate that part of the brain that was under stress. Um, A perfect example would be like somebody that is like really up and down or bouncing around and you give them GABA or L-theanine and you give them those supplements and it re helps re-regulate their emotional state. And all of a sudden the binge eating starts to subside because they're not needing to satiate dopamine and serotonin needs through the most convenient way possible, which is a 7-Eleven hot dog. Right. So now all of a sudden they're like, I don't desire that hot dog anymore. What changed? Well, you started using supplements the way they're designed to be used. You know, a lot of people just want to crunch supplements because they think it's going to replace food. And it's like, well, that's not really what we're doing with them. We're filling the gaps that food are leaving empty or the demand of our lifestyle is causing a depletion in. Right. So if you're a hard charger personality wise, right? And you do a Braverman's test and you figure out where you're at on the scale and you're just crushing, crushing, crushing. Supplements are an easy and effective way to reestablish the depletion zones of your personality, right? So you put that personality on top of athletics, on top of A, B, and C. And it's like, okay, that's where they can really be a gap, a gap, a gap stop for people that are starting to run into issues.
0: Now, what about? I mean, I'm obviously talking about Thorn specifically. My knowledge of Thorn is, you know, the efficacy um, and the cleanliness from a, from a profession that gets drug tested as well. What has made you choose Thorn? I mean, obviously, most of us don't just use one company, we use different ones from different companies, but, you know, what, what aligns you with Thorn with that particular company?
1: So that would probably go back to like the Poliquin days, like what a lot of people don't realize is Poliquin was a big supplement company at one time too, but we private labeled, meaning which we didn't, everyone thought we did, but whatever, we didn't actually manufacture any supplements in-house, right? In-house zero. We private labeled medical grade supplements. Now here's, what's interesting about that. And this is where I became first introduced to Thorn, is Poliquin had access to any supplement on the planet, most of which had his own name on the bottle that were manufactured by somebody else. But when you went into his house, there was still a handful. So if he wasn't using what he believed to be his product that he had hands-on manufacturing of, the only supplement that he would use personally was Thorne, which I thought was interesting. A lot of people don't know that, right? But for me, that's when I was introduced to them because I was like, holy shit. And there was like a couple smaller brands that aren't expensive that, uh, and I'll say one just so people don't think I'm just here plugging a company, but, uh, solar ray, for example, I was like, we were on the road, on the road and, uh, like, shit, I'm out of this. And he's like, he's like, ah, you know, like kind of hymns and haws. I'm like, and I held up solar ray. It was just a, a single ingredient product at the time. Right. It wasn't like a big complex thing. He goes, yeah, they're okay. Uh, you know, in a pinch, they're always typically plus value over degeneration. I was like, what the hell does that mean Amy?" He goes, it means they put a little more in the product. So when it sits on the shelf, it doesn't degradate below the recommended dose that they have. I was like, is that good? He's like, yeah, it's a sign that they're not a piece of shit company. And Charles is typical vernacular, right? I was like, okay, good to know. So with that being said, yeah, there are good companies out there, but when I'm dealing with like Sever, Trevor Bassett, who's my one of my best athletes right now, he's number, ranked uh, last year, he was bronze medalist at world championships. He was a uh, bronze medalist at US nationals last week in the 400 meter hurdles. I will not recommend anything but thorn to that athlete because I need to know 100% the validity of the product, the quality of the manufacturing, and I need to sleep at night knowing that he didn't take a supplement and test positive because they used some third-party manufacturer that ran a, a batch of who knows what through the same drums that his powder came out of. And if people think that that doesn't exist, you're gravely mistaken. It happens all the time. With supplement companies, contrary to the bullshit people read, Seven different companies may be using one manufacturing facility to produce their product. And how that typically works is, you know, product X is doing a batch of fat loss products. The company, they don't give a shit because they just produce and mix. They clean up the vats. They wash them down. They clean them out. They reset. A new order comes in from a new supplement company. They do that manufacturing process and send it out. And that happens over and over and over again. And what we saw in the past is a company would test positive. You'd get batch numbers, you'd get all this information and you'd be like, oh, you test the positive, especially in the pro hormone days or the big product days, because this third party company produced like super grow 2000 on a Wednesday, right? And you bought your creatine on a Thursday and the vats had cross contamination, thorn runs their own show, right? So companies like Thorne are all in-house, all control their manufacturing. You're not going to get a tainted supplement. You're just not, right? And I know for some people they are like, ah, it doesn't matter. And it should matter because it means the company you're buying from cares so little about quality control in the end product user that they don't care enough to make sure that you don't test positive. And that goes all the way down the road to where did they source their Yohimbi from, right? Like it, do, it doesn't just end with cleaning the containers. It's like, oh, your arginine came from China and it's got heavy metals in it. Now, oh, congratulations, right? Like you won, <laughs> it's not the type of metal I want to win, you know? So it's uh, all that matters. It all matters. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. Because again,
0: it's not about um, you know, a, a, an infomercial. It's about telling the story. Someone people listening, I'd say most of them are gonna go in and buy supplements. And one of the most like nausea uh frustrating things is my bonus boy, and my stepson is into kind of bodybuilding now. I have access to the entire Thorn, you know, catalogue. I mean, I get a discount and everything. And he still goes to GNC and buys it from the fucking idiot, you know, telling him, oh, this is, you know, big gonad, 12,000, you're going to need this. And I'm just like, whatever, 100%. whatever, eventually he'll come around. But so at least I can story tell, okay, this is who these guys are. You're actually, and people listening, I don't know if this episode will have the, the promo on, but Thorne gives pretty much everyone listening, whether you're first responder, military, um, emergency medicine. They give you. I think it's forty percent off. You just you just go through GovX. It's you get, huge. It's massive. So that makes it cheaper than all the shit in yeah you know, some of these stores. So I chase Thorn as a sponsor because I want the men and women listening to use the things that are actually not only going to be safe on the drug tests and their health in general, but also
1: have the things in it that the label says. What and and dosing matters dosing absolutely matters if as long as someone's got good stomach health which is always a an, a situation of, of concern but there's a big difference between taking 25 milligrams of gaba and 750 milligrams of gaba there's a big difference and a lot of these companies without naming names but pretty sure one eventually had a guy write a book they will do they will do uh <laughs> they will do they will do like proprietary blends right and proprietary blends can work if the proprietary blend breaks down the individual dosing of ingredients like thorns new pre-workout it tells you what's in it per dose based on weight during the mixing but if you have a company that has proprietary blend and just lists the ingredient, but not the dose. It gives you one dose. So it says 1000 milligrams proprietary blend dollars to donuts. 99% of that proprietary blend is the cheapest ingredient. 99% of the time. So yeah, you're getting a thousand milligrams, but yeah, like 990 milligrams were deer antler, right? Like, you know, it just, it just doesn't work. It doesn't commute. Right. So Um, it's important, like ingredients, doses, information, the supplement industry, regardless of what people try to tell us is the wild West. It always has been, and it always will be. There will be companies that will break the law tomorrow with illegal supplements on a mass level, maybe even go to jail, not naming names, get out of jail, start a new company, and they will be multi-multi-millionaires because it doesn't matter. They'll take the 24 months in Camp Fed for the $750 million that they made off of supplements. What does that sound like? Oh, yeah, drug dealers. It sounds like drug dealers, right? They're willing to take the hit for the millions. And that's happened in our industry in the last five years. It, it does. It's not a hard Google search to see which current company was owned by somebody that did time at Camp Fed for selling illegal uh, drugs and a supplement product, right? To the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, again, that's why this kind of conversation is so important. Informed choice, that's all it is one other area i want to talk about just quickly we've discussed crossfit like i said i'm i'm a huge fan everyone has to find the right gym and then figure out whether the programming is ideal like i do a very or did a hybrid version of the crossfit that we had in in the actual gym and then some strongman stuff i got from julian penneau strong fit amazing combination for firefighters very recently i had greg walsh on the show and for the last oh, month, dude. I've started doing just solely Wolf Brigade programming and the strongman stuff. So talk to me about Greg, because I know that you did some cross-pollination there too.
1: Yeah, so Greg and I kind of discovered each other through social media quite some time ago, um, probably because we just spoke very similar language. So the thing that I like about Greg's systems and, and Wolf Brigade in particular A lot of people recognize it for the mace swinging because there's a product associated with it. So you can hold something like, oh, what is this? Oh, it's from Wolf Brigade. But that's such a small percentage of the whole holistic system that he teaches. And the way that the best way that I can describe what Greg has been doing is he's really brought the martial mentality back to weightlifting, which I think is essential. Like even when I came up through Olympic weightlifting and came up through traditional sports development, once I got out of small town Canada. Everything was you train at the highest level possible that you're able to execute perfectly, if that makes sense. So like, it'd be like white belt Kung Fu and you're standing in your horse stance for three months, right? A lot of that psychology methodology carries through to how he develops athletes. And it's why his athletes are so strong per pound and so capable per pound, because the evolution of that has been very systematic right? You master each Kaizen principle, you know, taken from Paul and and it's like this continue incremental steady improvement. So, you know, you, once you master the piece, you add the piece. Once you master the piece, you add a new piece and you just keep stacking blocks. And I think people forget that, yeah, it can take a little longer and it can be at times frustrating for those that are getting social validation uh, for the type of training that they do because they want to show off a little bit, but if they stick to the course and they follow the concepts and and principles of periodization that they incorporate, the way in which you will be able to show off a year after you start training with that type of methodology will be so much exponentially greater than what people could ever comprehend um, in terms of the ability to wield self and wield self and load. And I remember Charles uh, Bentley, Charles Bentley, when we trained together at the Browns, even as an offensive lineman, he would always make that correlation. If you can't wield self, how do you wield yourself in another, right? Um, And there's a big aspect of that in the Wolf Brigade systems. Um, And it's nice to see. uh, And that's probably why he and I clicked so quickly in terms of personality and training style. Because although our training systems Uh, overlap. They're different because I was training different types of athletes and had different requirements, but you know, and I've said this to others, all we need is one. And typically it's like your first follower mentality, but even though Wolf Brigade has tons and tons of athletes that use a system, if we could pull one UFC fighter, if we could pull one combative athlete into Greg's world, So people could see how bone breakingly effective that training methodology is in that world. People would never, I shouldn't say never, because that's, that's the death of us all, but it would be, I'd be hard pressed to believe that people would want to utilize systematic training any other way for that endeavor in particular. So then you extrapolate that out to that type of lifestyle and athlete. It's like the the be ready. So you don't have to get ready mindset is very much in play with that type of program periodization and development, you know, for sure. Yeah. It's, uh, I just wish that I wish that people would just step away from the circus lights just long enough to see what true essence of human performance actually looks like, you know, and it's, uh, ironically they're very black and white in their imagery and style and design but maybe not so much by accident because true long-term successful development is pretty black and white like there's you know you can fudge the edges and throw a little a little shine on things but hard laborious work is not any different than the dune the The dude, the landing, curling the chainsaw 35, 40 years ago, that was one of my first like, holy shit moments as a young kid being like, what is that? But what is that? It's a guy working 10 hours a day, curling a chainsaw on a landing, right? That's that's not selling on the internet. Maybe it would now, but it's not going to sell many. Why? Because that shit was just hard and consistent. He knew he was going to be there every day. He knew he was going to eat lunch every day. He knew he had a chainsaw, so he curled it. He'd
0: Simple. make a fortune if his lunch was raw liver and he
1: was bright orange. <laughs> make a fortune. <laughs> raw liver testicles and like <laughs> do a cleanse. He'd also have there'd have to be some sort of cleanse involved, involved with oil and cayenne. As long as he put those things all together, he wouldn't have had to work a chainsaw living, that's for sure. Absolutely. And then just a stool
0: made in purely of hypodermic syringes. So when you sit down, you get a, a dose as well.
1: <laughs> how, how could people believe he was natural? How? Like, I know how. I know how. Because they wanted to believe. Mm-hmm. They we, wanted we need, we to We needed believe.
0: a hero. We had a bright orange hero
1: before, and we needed another one. We needed another one, 100%. <laughs> and it's like, like Hulk Hogan's Hulk Hogan for a reason, right? And regardless of what anyone wants to believe or say, or act oh it's it was all scripted of course it was scripted by a professional stuntman that was bigger than the world right every we, it's just it's in our dna to need that right like like I, maybe that's why our generation didn't buy in right liver king comes rolling along and we're like oh sweet we got a new monster man randy savage this is cool and It's like Oh yeah, but he doesn't use drug. Oh really? Yeah, right on. I heard that story in the '80s, and then the entire WWE at the time had to go to trial. In <laughs> the major like, league, in <laughs> the major leagues, right? Yeah, that that is a fascinating story. Poliquin had insight into that that blew my mind because he was working with a lot of those guys at the time, and I remember him making the comment. He's like, "Yeah, none of that would have blown up if someone hadn't a spotted a syringe." in one of the locker players or one of the players' lockers and the person that spotted it was in politics and was like what the hell is that had financial ties to the team in which the needles were openly visible made a conversation brought it to the top and then shit hit the fan because there was no desire for there to ever be drug testing in MLB. None they had they didn't care. They it was irrelevant until a politician was in a locker room and saw a thing on a thing, and that was it. And then it just shit from the top down. (laughs) Well, what's
0: ironic is I'm about to partner with Charlotte's Web CBD, another company that I went, because I've used CBD for years, but uh, I was searching for a company because the the guest I had on before is amazing, but he's a physician and didn't really have the kind of, Available to everyone, element to to his own CBD. So I had Paige Figgy on, and it was her daughter was Charlotte. That's the origin story of you know of the use of CBD as we know it today. But they have just partnered with the um, Major League Baseball. I forget. I, I think it's is it Major League or one team? I think it might be one team. But anyway, they are official CBD now. So they've got this th free. Uh, THC free I always struggle with that THC free line that is NSF certified so now not only yeah so now not only Olympian or professional sports player knows that they actually can take this and not fail the test that means that the first responder and military community can too so again another invaluable story behind which product do I buy CBD from the gas station or do I buy it here?
1: yeah exactly you buy CBD from the gas station and you you got some Creating boner pill by accident because <laughs> you know, like, again, you know, there's only so many people that can manufacture that stuff as much as we like to believe that it's all coming from these pristine labs in middle America. It's not, it's not, it's, oh, it's bullshit. Like it just is, you know, it's like, you know, you find out after the fact that you, you're like, why do you know, why do gas station boner pills work so well? Because it's Cialis and they're going to sell it until they get caught by the FDA, pay the monster fine, but it's a fraction of what they made and they're on to the next one. I just, I wish more people would realize that. Like I know sports supplement companies that started in garages by guys buying powders from China that they were mixing in home cement mixers right? Like the old, the drum ones you'd see in mm-hmm. someone's driveway before they do their own driveway. They would buy them clean and fresh. Don't get me wrong. Like they were buying brand new cement mixers, but that's how they started their supplement companies. And a part of me is like, man, I commend your entrepreneurial spirit. And another part of me is like, people are buying cement mixer, protein powder. And they think it's like grade A tested, whatever. And it's not, it's just the guy that's willing to Do the thing and not give a shit and you're going to consume what you consume, you know? And if something fell into it or, oh, I don't know, they dosed it with dirt cheap Chinese D-ball because the first batch is the most important batch. And so everybody's like, holy shit, I gained 10 pounds from super explosion 9,000. This is the best (laughs) product I've ever met, right? And then, you know, the word gets out. They test all the upcoming supplements. They're like, oh, there's nothing illegal in this. No, only the first batch.
0: Mm-hmm. Jeff Nichols was telling me that same
1: exact like, not story, but, you know, concept. Concept. Yeah, it's dose the first batch. The sports supplement industry is ripe with that. It's like, listen, the, <laughs> a lot of drug dealers give the first hit away for free, right? And the sports supplement industry... I hate to admit it, there's a lot of former drug dealers, some of which the records are public, are in our industry because the marketing's the same
0: that you explains know? why my driveway is squishy and smells like vanilla, <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs>
0: all right, well, in the very last area before we go to some closing questions, and I finally let you go um. We talked about curling chainsaws back in Canada. So originally a mine, now Bitcoin mining. So let's kind of wrap this conversation up with that before we do some closing questions.
1: Yeah, crazy because I did bring that up. So it, it's uh, there's a, a gentleman in BC that is buying up all the old lumber mills. And I don't know how I feel about this, right? Because I have like a strong love interest in 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 renewables like lumber if it's properly cared for. Um, and trees, but that in, those industries are dying in BC, and contrary to what people want to believe, it's also why we have the worst forest fires in Canadian history right now. If you don't manage something, it'll manage itself. It's just like people, right? So, uh, but up in BC, this guy's been buying up Bitcoin mines. which you know because most of these old mills ran along a river and they're converting them into mining organizations and using the water sources for green energy to cool the supercomputers that are doing the coin mining. And then there are, you know, a lot of heat is produced. It's kind of brilliant. So then there's a huge heat production. So the cooling system is cooling the computers. The computers are generating masses amounts of heat, which they're now using to make year round greenhouses that they're growing organics in, in these like refurbished lumber mills in the middle of nowhere. And it's just kind of wild to see that, like, when you stop and think about it, this isn't a hundred year evolution. It's like 10, 15 years that these towns went from being off the map, like no education, blue collar, you know, dirt collar, not even blue collar places to possibly the most cutting-edge cryptocurrency development systems in the world you know it's kind of mind-blowing and wild the one worth a google is a place called canal flats british columbia and that is one of these mills that has been recently converted and now they're crypto mining yeah crazy
0: i'm gonna have to look that up all right it's
1: worth it's an interesting google
0: i'm sure okay so then closing questions um the first one i love to ask is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend it can be relating to our
1: quite vast conversation today or completely unrelated uh i think everybody needs to like not so much like one book or the other but uh the audio interview with joseph campbell um and he, they talk about all his different books, the, the, the warrior's journey, you know, a thousand faces, all that type of stuff. Um, I think people really need to reconnect with him before we forget about him. Uh, he's just, he has such a brilliant way of breaking down, uh, like human purpose. Connecting it to religion, connecting it to spirituality, you don't have to believe in either. So it's like you can kind of go deep down uh the rabbit hole with that. So I'm a I'm a huge fan. Read it or listen to it. I like to listen to it because I like to hear it from his words, his perspective. Um, but you can read the books as well. So that that for one is is a big one. Um I just recommended a book uh to Jocko, oddly enough from Christian Thibodeau, uh, because someone asked me what I thought the most uh, important uh, strength and conditioning book. And I, so I'm going to, I'm going to preempt this with when I got it, it was in loose leaf and I don't know where I got it forever ago. So I had it in a binder. The title was too long for me to remember. So I always remembered it as an acronym. And, uh, the book itself I think was the applied theories and methods of power training, but I, I still swear that's the wrong name. So I always have to go and look it up, um, training, um, but you'll find it if you kind of get like even close to that as a title to me, I think it's one of the most important books that you can have to understand program design from a lot of different strength coaches. He just, it's It's good. Like, I don't think he gets nearly enough credit for it. I believe it might've came out before or after by a year of his, uh, black book of training theories, uh, Christian Thibodeau's one, but it's, uh, it's the other one, the one with the real long name and the sciencey looking cover, right? It wasn't, it wasn't the T mag version that they figured out the marketing, but it, that book I think is essential for up and coming strength coaches. Beautiful. All
0: right. Well, then what about a movie and or a documentary that you love?
1: Uh, So I was for sure I was dramatically impacted by Pumping Iron, for sure. Like it just I'd never seen someone so charismatic and so connected to the culture that I wanted to be a part of um then Arnold and Pumping Iron like I, I was a meathead by by design like that that movie was was key uh documentary Uh, Milius about the guy the director and author of like Conan the Barbarian that documentary is worth because like for a guy my generation our generation uh Milius either wrote or directed every majorly impactful movie of my generation, right? Like you're talking about the guy that like, uh, apocalypse now, right? Like, you know, that's his work. Um, uh, John Goodman's character in the big Lebowski is a rendition or a caricature of a real guy. And that's John Milius. Um, amazing, amazing script writer, amazing director. The documentary about his life is is very fascinating. He's the guy everyone knew. He was successful. Don't get me wrong. Everyone, like he made a lot of money and made a lot of amazing movies, but he was still the guy the guys went to. You know, he was still the guy that Spielberg would ask, How do I write this dialogue? Right. So that's a fascinating one. Like those, those two in particular, I think have been hugely impactful for sure. And then in terms of movies, like I was a a wanderlust guy. So like the movie, big fish, uh, sorry, the movie, big fish and, uh, um, big fish was huge. That one was really impactful to me as well as a good English term, uh, Walter Mitty. Yeah, I love those two movies. I think because they were movies of like the great adventure, you know. Yeah, those two hugely important movies that I also, you know, don't get a lot of attention and you know, you either love them or you'll never watch another one in your life, but I'm a huge Wes Anderson guy.
0: I uh, had a a guest on. It was a great conversation, but he um wasn't completely honest about his time in an armed unit of a police organization and so nothing happened for a long time i think there was a book being planned by him and then all of a sudden my emails and texts were flooded oh, by no. this guy who's being a a mitty and i'm like what the fuck is a mitty?" Yep. and then yeah. when i looked it up i was like oh okay so now <laughs> i get it so yeah some basically a stolen valor type thing but, Stolen uh,
1: valor yeah very yeah, I think that's one of Ben Stiller's best movies. I, I love Walter Mitty. That's a good movie.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, then the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: All right, so I haven't listened to every episode, so I hope I don't double dip. Um, the two that come right off the top of my head, uh Tyson Shumway, uh, so Tyson is California Highway Patrol, as well as an instructor, and I'll give you his information, uh, as well as an instructor for field craft, good dude, tons of experience well-spoken guy that i've taken a huge gleaned a huge amount of knowledge from but he also speaks the the strength and conditioning language as well because he's a power athlete block one coach um he's he's a fascinating dude uh so tyson's a good one and have you ever had rudy on here rudy reyes
0: i have actually i need to get him back on i think he's still doing the sas show at the moment yeah, but he, he's, he's an amazing, amazing right human
1: okay yeah. He's always like, because I like Rudy, like, cause we're buddies. I always like when he gets on and I can listen to him talk because he's such a charismatic storyteller, you know? Yeah. So even though I'm buddies with both of those guys, they're both connected to this world. And I think they're hugely important knowledge bases
0: absolutely yeah. really was amazing and you know we talked all kinds of stuff but i mean there's a thousand other things i want to ask him so we'll we'll definitely yeah. do another one in the future all right. right well then the next the last question before we make sure people know where to find you and your work now what do you do to decompress
1: so so oddly enough um like my true empty space like where i don't hear i don't think i just do is for me, it's, it's skiing. It'll always be skiing. Yeah. Like I can lift weights until the cows come home. Granted, uh, I will say I started doing like, not as a promotional thing, but I, I, I use their equipment cause it's all I got. I started doing, uh, walks with the go ruck weight and just listening to podcasts. Uh, that's quickly becoming my summer activity. Outside of weight room stuff. Like I just movement. I I think for me it's just empty space movement. Um, but because obviously my fiance is a a world-class ski coach and those things, there were certain requirements of in regards to me getting back on my skis, right? Because that's such a big part of her life. And I've skied my whole life. Like I started skiing before I always refer to snow skiing as the is the second language sport for me. I started so young, I can't really remember learning. So I've always known it, right? Like kind of like if I had a second language to depend on, but she is such a high level coach that when we met and I wanted to, cause I wanted to start skiing again. And she's like, let's just start as if you're starting from scratch. And, uh, and so she coached me up and really redeveloped me. And I don't say this like a dickhead, but like I ski at a high, high level. And I think that's an important little caveat because if you don't do certain movement things at a level of proficiency, you can't clear your mind, right? Like, so if you're like, if someone's like, Hey, let's go do downhill mountain bike. Yeah. There's going to be no flow state relaxation happening for me. I'm going to be like, all you're going to hear is like a scream and me moving past you. Right. So, <laughs> but skis, the skiing's different. So for me, that's become my flow state. Like when I'm on skis nothing like there's just an emptiness it's just empty and and i I know i'm moving i know all those things are happening i know there's tactical decision making happening it doesn't it, it doesn't i'm speaking another language that i speak well you know and i and i think if you can find whatever that is just get proficient enough that your mind can just empty you know martial arts yoga water skiing skydive i don't know whatever you know for some it's weightlifting, perhaps. Weightlifting's never been empty space for me. Weight—that that is the loudest moment of my life is the weight room. It's always been that way. Uh, unless it was max effort squats, max effort dads and cleans, where everything disappeared, but it's only two seconds long, right? Where skiing is I can that it's a full day of empty, you know. Yeah,
0: I can relate I, I started skiing when I was eight now bearing in mind I've never lived near snow so we're talking about you know a week a year when I was younger and then sure. a, a weekend yep. every so often um, you know like I mean every two or three years now but standing on top of a mountain holding skis snowboard, whatever I'm gonna ride that day there's nothing like it in the world you're literally nope. standing on top of the world and all that's taking you down is gravity and you know I like, st-
1: taking use gravity
0: yeah and i'll have moments of flow but obviously the, to underline what you're saying i do not have the mastery to get in that very often but you know you get in some powder on a board or you know you get that kind of line on skis um you know where there's not lots of other people zigzagging ahead of you and it's just it's it's amazing it's absolutely amazing you know you're right your, eye, your te- eyes are streaming with tears because you forgot your glasses and your hands are cold yeah, yeah, exactly. but it's it's incredible
1: it is incredible. And like the two years I lived in California, like Mammoth was our home mountain. I remember just having a day, as was like riding up chair 23, and I was just kind of looking to the summit. And I'm like, I'm riding up a chair. I'm riding in this basket up the side of a mountain at 11,000 feet to like to ride like the back of a dragon on a pair of sticks. Like it was so absurd that it didn't make any sense. But at the same time, I was like, is there anything greater than what I'm about to try to do? Like, this is crazy, right? And then, like you say, you're standing on top of the world. And especially if it's gnarly, it's like, you don't have time to think about anything else because you don't have time. Yeah, 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 it's, that's me. I get, I get it. I, I, I don't think there'll be anything that takes that place for me sport uh, movement wise anything i've tried it doesn't work beautiful all right well then the very last
0: thing so tell people you know you're you're consulting now obviously that's your 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 independent element that you have talk to me about you know what you offer to people that may or may not be able to to kind of use you as a consultant and then also where people
1: can find you online So online, it's pretty simple. It's just my name.com. They can also use ecobolic.com, but DerekWoodski.com will get you to the same place. Um, That's just kind of like my online landing page. Instagram is also my name. I still do a lot of writing on Instagram. I always tell people, I know it's not how things are done nowadays, but if you just Take the time to go back about 600 posts. You're gonna find you're gonna find I wrote a lot when I was in the Middle East. I wrote a lot, and on, and it's all on Instagram. And I'm trying to like bring it forward again and find ways so people don't have to go back and look for it. Um, so that's like more like mindset stuff mostly. Um, I do online programming using the Train Heroic app. Uh, for athletes. I got a one team that's updated monthly that I work with that's got some athletes on it. And then I do standalone program design. I'm in the process of just finishing, uh, some, like what you would think of as periodization for first responders. It's going to basically be like three programs, like a GPP, uh, basically hypertrophy into mobility. And then like, uh, not in a super advanced, but a little more advanced athletic-based program. And it's just going to be like Kevlar, Patrolman, or Patrol, and then like uh, Tacticals, just so there's titles for it. Um, But Kevlar, the program that was just about finished, I'll have it done this week. I've been actually working on for a long time, and it's just a program about 12 weeks in length to help people like Stay strong and healthy in a lifestyle where there might be a lot of sitting or immobility. Right. The title kind of makes sense. Right. Um, and then there's supplement protocols that go with that. All the supplement protocol stuff is already on Derek and that's free. Like my entire breakdown of Thorn supplements, when to use them with athletes, the uh, handout, the booklet, and the Bubs Naturals handle. That's all it's all free. It's a free PDF. Um, a lot of people have downloaded it, so I shouldn't say that oh, people just go on and grab it. They should. Um, but yeah, it's a free download PDF form. And I just break down like AM PM pre-workout post-workout. The only thing with the online supplement guide I need to update, uh, because we were waiting on the pre-workout from thorn to come out, So I wrote it prior to that. It hadn't come out. It's a year older than the supplement is, uh, side note buy the pre-workout from Thorn If you need a pre-workout, that stuff is amazing. I was able to get an early release. Awesome supplement. Uh, anyway, side note on that. Uh, but yeah, Derekwood And then the, the like first responder specific workout should be fully up on train heroic and then fully loaded, uh, as a PDF as well. I'm thinking by the middle of August, everything should be done. You know, it's just, I don't like to rush out the actual programming because like, it's hard to go back and fix it once it's written without having to re-release it. And I just don't want to release something and be like, oh, that's shit, right? You know, so I'm trying to avoid that at all costs. Um, but yeah, there is programming online. The Trilogy system is my go-to program for busy people. And that's on Train Heroic. It's uh, a specific program based on... Uh, like vertical integration. So there's like a a power day, hypertrophy day and metabolic day all in the same week and all the days progress over time. So it's like three micro uh, periodizations as well as like hitting three fundamental goals in the same system. I developed that for my brother uh, who works a professional career, but is really active. And it was the fittest he had ever started water ski season in his forties in his life. Um, and it was just simple to the point strength and conditioning right but doing it in a way that the dots all connect beautiful
0: well we've been talking for three and a half hours it's been an amazing conversation we've gone gotten... fast
1: though it's weird
0: it did is it? i mean this is what i love about this you know this this being yeah. present and having a conversation and we could have gone a thousand other different yeah. ways and had you know hours more but So I just want to thank you, not only for sharing your knowledge, you know, and you've, you know, obviously got so much experience, especially as an athlete, the injury side, working with some of the, you know, most revered teams on the planet and then working in the tactical space. But I also want to, you know, to be generous.
1: Excuse me. Fucking hell.
0: I also want to thank you for being so generous with your time and just coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. I was really looking forward to coming on. And I know there's a number of guys I'd mentioned to and in in our worlds that were like, oh, that's going to be awesome. You'll love it. And I was like, all right. I just hope I don't fuck it up.